Hi, everyone. Welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film, always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Nick Rurkraut. And I'm Sophia Simonello. And the moment is finally here. We have four stars with us. An exciting pod ahead. I cannot tell you how much anticipation has been built to this moment. The research that has gone into this, the amount of songs I've listened to, all of the soundtracks, we will be talking about all four versions of A Star is Born. And yes, there are different versions, but these are the feature film versions starring the iconic actresses and performers. So we will get into all of those. But to do that, we have two special guests with us from the drama podcast. They've been on the podcast before and we love when we have them. Connor and Dylan McDowell, thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited. Oh my God, I'm so excited. Oh yeah, Connor, you you just need to say it with me. I'm sorry, I know. Well, hey everybody, this is Connor's voice. And this is Dylan's voice. I feel like we always have to establish who is who. We'll try our best, but you guys, I'm so excited. This has been years in the making, I feel like, because we all shared a mutual love for the 2018 Star Wars Born, and that happened right before your podcast came out, right? Like, that was the Oscars right before. Is that right? Yeah. So these were the 2018 Oscars, and we started doing, yeah, predictions, and our last episodes were on the 2019 Oscars when Parasite won. So, yeah, Star Wars Born is special. And I remember when I went to see the 2018 version, it was such a momentous occasion in my life which we'll get into all the reasons why I'm sure as we talk about it today but I remember texting all of you before and after yes <laughs> I remember it really too. was just such an experience I can't believe we're doing this what started as just a five-year anniversary episode on that version of the movie I think quickly expanded to include the 1937 1954 and 1976 versions as well and these are wild, you guys. So I'm very excited to dig into these two. I can't wait. I've never done so much research for anything in my life. I really, you know, we have our own <laughs> podcast and this, the amount of prep going into this, but it was fun prep was beyond. So I really can't wait to talk about it. And we've held off. We, there was some silly texts going yesterday, but I feel like it's, it's <laughs> we're, to quote Dylan, we're hashtag saving it for the pod. So here we go. <laughs> I know. Like I was starting to say, I am so honored that you guys chose us to join you because you have so many fabulous friends in the film sphere, the the world of film podcasting, but the the crossover of musical theater, and it's kind of ingrained in some of these films. And so I think that it works well with our drama brand. So Thank you again for having us. As Valerie Cherish would say, thank you. <laughs> well, I do have a fun like crossover question when we get there that relates to Broadway. So I'm curious what you guys Ooh. think. And I'm kind of surprised there's no Broadway production of A Star is Born, or is there? I certainly, I mean, I'll, I'll answer now Like what I to that thought is I certainly think that the formula can be found in a lot of Broadway shows notably funny girl i feel like mm-hmm. it's very similar but i don't think that there's i mean there's an actual a star is born the musical yet when it happens i'm sure it'll be hugh jackman and ariana debose so <laughs> I'm, mark my words right here now i have a feeling that's who it'll be but anyway really etch it in stone yeah well you have to have a, a significant age gap i feel for most of these to work so but we'll get into it I could see that working, though, yeah. So before we get into A Star is Born, we asked you guys this last time you were on, and we need to ask you again, what are you both wild for right now? 
Ooh, I know. I always know this is coming. I would say for me, it's the Broadway cast recording that just surprisingly dropped this week for Merrily We Roll Along, Stephen Sondheim's often maligned and confused work. And there's this this Broadway production that's just started previews starring Jonathan Groff, Daniel Radcliffe, and Lindsay Mendez. And people are saying it is now the definitive version. And I think it was just two nights ago they just announced it'll be coming out at midnight. And I have been listening to it since. And, oh, they got it right. They really did. That's a good one. Okay, I'm wild for Jacob Elordi right now. and oh, yes, Connor. <laughs> listen, Sophia, I knew that you would love this because we talk about him every day. But I think it's so fun to see someone really have their A Star Is Born moment. He's in these two films right now, Priscilla and Saltburn. And I think he's solidifying himself as a legitimate movie star. You know, we saw him on Netflix's The Kissing Booth. We saw him on Euphoria. But he's really showing that he's a great actor. And he's, of course... So hot. So it's really fun to watch hot people on screen, as we all can probably agree. And I'm totally wild for him. So, yeah. That's a perfect answer. And (laughs) honestly, the way you just described him is similar to the way I'm going to describe one of our Norman mains, I'll say, later on. Ooh. (laughs) I love it. I can only imagine who who it's going to (laughs) be. Who is it? Who did I, you know, root for when he was in terrible movies and now... (laughs) He's making prestige dramas. Wow. Wow. I feel like we talked about Jacob on the West Side Story episode because we talked about him being a choice for Tony in the remake of that film. Oh, yeah. I, I have this oh, like... Oh, wow. so tall line. Yeah, the tall line. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we've, we've been on the Jacob train for a few years now, haven't we? We have. We have. So I think just a little bit of how this episode will work for listeners. So normally when we do Oscar rewinds or when we talk about multiple movies in an episode, we will go movie by movie. But we thought it would be more fun this time to, instead of doing that, we're just going to run through, you know, the descriptions of these movies, who was involved, what their Oscar trajectories looked like as a group and then we're going to discuss all four versions together going through some categories of the similarities between the four so the general plot description of all of the stars borns obviously there are little differences we will get into but a young woman comes to hollywood with dreams of stardom and achieves them with the help of an alcoholic leading man whose best days are behind him So for the 1937 version, this was directed by William A. Wellman with uncredited nods to Jack Conway and Victor Fleming. The stars Janet Gaynor and Frederick March. It won two Oscars for writing original story and an honorary award for its color photography. It had six other nominations for picture, director for Wellman, actress for Gaynor, actor for March, writing, screenplay, and assistant director for Eric Stacey. The 1954 version was directed by George Cukor and stars Judy Garland, James Mason, and Charles Bickford. It was written by Moss Hart and based on the 1937 screenplay and story. It was nominated for six Oscars, Best Actress for Judy Garland, Actor for Mason, Art Direction, Set Decoration, Color, Costume Design, Color, original song for The Man That Got Away and scoring of a musical picture. And Garland and Mason both won at the Golden Globes. Worth noting here that Judy Garland lost Best Actress to Grace Kelly for The Country Girl. 
and Janet Gaynor lost Best Actress to Louise Reiner for The Good Earth. Not great wins. I read this. I don't know if it's true. This sounds like a huge rumor, but Hedda Hopper said that Judy was six votes away from winning. Well, that Hedda Hopper right there. Rumor mill city. (laughs) (laughs) We never know the votes, so I really didn't want to believe this, but I think she had potential for winning. But next up in the 1976 version, this was directed by Frank Pearson and stars Barbara Streisand, Chris Christopherson, and Gary Busey. It was written by John Gregory Dunn, Joan Didion, and Frank Pearson. Barbara Streisand had an uncredited nod as well, and this was also based on the 1937 story. It won one Oscar for original song for Evergreen, Love Theme, From a Star is Born, and was nominated for three others for cinematography, sound, and original song score and its adaptation or best adaptation score. This went five for five at the Globes, winning picture, actress for Streisand, actor for Christopherson, original score, and original song. The Golden Globes love A Star is Born. It's wild. The 2018 version was directed by Bradley Cooper and stars Lady Gaga, Bradley Cooper, and Sam Elliott. It was written by Eric Roth, Bradley Cooper, and Will Fetters and was based on the 1937 story and 54 and 76 screenplays. It won only one Oscar, painfully, for original song for Shallow and was nominated for Picture, Actress for Lady Gaga, Actor for Bradley Cooper, Supporting Actor for Sam Elliott, Adapted Screenplay, Cinematography, and Sound Mixing. And since I mentioned Best Actress... Who won in those races for the others? I'll say that Lady Gaga lost to Olivia Coleman. So we actually have a good winner. I will not mention what happened with Bradley Cooper yet. I haven't built up the courage to publicly talk about that race here yet on this show. We will get there maybe an hour or two. <laughs> it's never been discussed ever? I don't think so. Oh not God. in a real way. Amazing. Wow. We'll build up to it. Even looking back at Promising Young Woman, which isn't related to this podcast, but that lineup and having Emerald Fennell in director, I'm just like, how did this happen back then? Because this director lineup too, I feel the same way. Like Bradley Cooper missing? Yeah. Or what that lineup looked like? I guess both. That was one of those great years where we did have a really good international mm-hmm. group of directors. Because Pavel Pavlikowski got in, Alfonso Coron, Yorgos Lanthimos, Spike Lee... One more. Say it. Adam McKay. Adam McKay for Vice. Ugh, gag. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Nick, what were you, what did you mean about that? Was it the the 2020 lineup that you're talking about with Promising Young Woman and Chloe Zhao and all that? Was that 2020? Yeah, that was Chloe Zhao and Nomadland, but that movie winning both. But just seeing how much the Academy loved Promising Young Woman, and I was like, such an inspired year why didn't we have that here or how did a star is born have so many nominations but miss in other big categories yeah get rid of vice please (laughs) we'll talk about editing later Mm -hmm. that race at the 2018 oscars was particularly pathetic i think I'm already on one. I know. I love we it. I love it. We can't talk about 2018 yet. Well, See, the, that's why we, we gave the breakdown of all four at first. Yeah. So we can jump around. I love it. Well, the thing <laughs> is that the listeners are about to find out is that I just finished my 2018 rewatch 
about an hour before we started recording and I was sobbing. So <laughs> I'm in true rare form and convinced that it should have won all, the big five. So anyway, we'll move on to, to other things here. But um, wow. <laughs> anyway, you'll never love again, Connor. I listened to the song on the train and the cut where he starts singing just kind of punches you against the wall when you hear his his voice singing. It is a gut punch. Yeah. It's one of those, like, I will cry anytime I see it or hear it kind mm -hmm. of movie moments. In addition to 2018, which I know, like, we obviously all are, it's a love fest. What was y'all's experience with the other three? I'm just curious because I had only known of them in Legend. I'd never watched any of them before this. So this mm -hmm. was a, a helpful education for me as well with movies I'd always wanted to tick off my my to-do list. Oh, well, I love that. I actually watched the other three before the 2018 one came out um, because I wanted to like be prepared for it. It was exciting to revisit them for this. The Streisand 76 version was one that I think it's always the one that has stood out in my head as like the most successful version in terms of box office, but the least successful in terms of what the film should actually look like. And the 54 version was like the height of filmmaking around A Star is Born. So that was kind of what I was thinking of going into it. But what I love about these movies, I think, is that it's kind of miraculous that they picked the perfect actress person to capture the zeitgeist of like what a star was at the time or what this kind of star is born woman looked like right and that's really cool so it's something i think that really sets these films apart and makes them exciting to watch anytime and they'll always be these fun time capsules i think for future generations who want to know more about the peak of stardom at the time wow i agree it makes me wish that we they wouldn't have waited the, like, I wish there would have been a 90s version before mm -hmm. we got the 2018 one because I feel like we got one every 20 years and then that there's like that gap there, mm. but it's okay. Who would the 90s Esther, Vicky, Allie person have been? I don't even know. <laughs> Celine Dion? So we got a listener question about this actually um, from Hunter Taylor on whether or not the bodyguard with Kevin Costner and Whitney Houston actually fills this weird 90s <laughs> blank. Iconic soundtrack, major star. Costner could totally do the Norman uh -huh. main part. I like the Tra hypothesis. Tragedy at the end. Uh-huh. I'll allow it. I will allow it too, yeah. because I think Whitney was the star at that time, now that I'm thinking about it. I mean, sure, like, Madonna was huge, leading from the 80s into the 90s, and that was right before the pop era started to kick off in the mid to late 90s of, you know, Britney Spears and that sort of star. But I'll allow it. Whitney. Whitney is, mm -hmm. she's great. Yeah. She's good in that movie, too. <laughs> I really like that comparison because you are looking at her stardom in that movie. And yeah, her voice is so iconic. I mean, there's tragedy in her person as well, which you can kind of see in especially the Garland version. And reading about, like, Cooper's problems with addiction, too, and reading into the 2018 version that way. I know it's the other character, but... So, yeah, I kind of love the Whitney Houston part for her. My relationship with them beforehand, I saw the 2018 version before I had seen the others. So, going back and watching them in order, I felt like that was necessary to do 
at least Mm -hmm. was really interesting seeing the changes and what they kept the same between the versions. I think the best component of each movie is creating that time capsule that you mentioned. Like we get the 70s and what 70s filmmaking was like in the 50s and the music changes based on the generation too. And I think looking back, that is, yes, a part of the actress, the performer, but in seeing how these people view celebrities and how Hollywood functioned even and the music industry in the later versions, I think we'll look back on them and really feel like we know what it was to live in that time. Like the chaotic energy of the 70s is very apparent, but also the romantic energy and how that changes between the duos is saying something about the actors playing them, but I think it is also of their time. So I loved peeking into these worlds, whether or not I loved the movies. Yeah, I mean, in 2018, that was the first A Star is Born that I actually saw. But then that spring on a plane, on a red-eye flight actually from LA, I watched the 1954 version. It was a great uninterrupted viewing. I was delirious, it was amazing. And then it was in this rewatch that I decided to go in order and do all of them again. So that's my A Star is Born journey. Watching them in order was so illuminating because Mm -hmm. you do, I think, especially for me, my knowledge of the 2018 version is stronger, I would say, than all of the others, even though I love the lore around every single version of this movie, the troubled productions, all of the fights on set, everything that happened. But that one I know like the back of my hand as far as how the script goes and what choices Bradley Cooper decides to make. So it was fun, I think, going in order and seeing not only, I think, sequentially what each version took from earlier versions and modified for the new time period that they were in, but also little visual cues that they took. So like, for example, one of the things I noticed this time was there's a moment in the 1954 version when Esther has become Vicky and she has all of this makeup on and Norman wants her to take the makeup off and he puts like all of this it's this like soap makeup remover all over her face and visually it's parallel is in 2018 when he puts the cake all over Lady Gaga's face when he's really drunk and reacting you know to her he she says he's jealous and it's just a really interesting visual parallel that I don't know if he did on purpose, but it was just a little thing that I clocked where I thought, oh my God, there's so many just small little similarities between every single version. No, you're so right. I noticed that too when in the 1976 version, when they're in the tub and Barbara's putting, she puts like this diamond eyebrow on his, Mm -hmm. on him. She's putting makeup on his face. And then I, in the 2018 one at the very beginning, when Jackson's in the drag bar with her, he asked her to take off her eyebrow and he like peels it off her because he wants to see her face. And I was like, these are these, like you said, Sophia, these visual cues that I think it's no mistake. I I wrote that one down too, Connor. When he's like, is that your real eyebrow? (laughs) In In like a more like layman's type way about it. Like it's just like a casual viewer. I was curious about like who decided what names stayed through the the versions and how they changed. Like Mm -hmm. the, the idea of Maine being in, three of the four like it's not in the 76 one at all right right it's it's like why did they decide to leave that out and then sometimes she's 
Esther, and then all of a sudden Allie comes out of nowhere yeah. for the most recent one, which I love that her name is Allie. I think it, it shows that she's truly a plain Jane. Like, how many Allies did y'all have in your <laughs> class growing up? You know, it's like Allison H, Allison B, Allie, you know, but anyone can become a star. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, it's it's so funny, too, because like even though I think old older names like Eleanor or Evelyn, those are big like girls' names from the time. No one's named Esther anymore. Right. So it would be really funny if her name was Esther and then she changed it. In 37, we have Esther Blodgett and Norman Maine. Let's say, stay here for a second. Esther Blodgett. Is this the toughest name you can have if you want to become a star? <laughs> it is. It it's is. up there. She's right? doomed. <laughs> the scene when they changed her name, too, I was like, <laughs> it was ridiculous. <laughs> I love when they're trying to figure out her Hollywood name. They go Esther, and in the end, it's like, oh, Lester rhymes with Esther. So Vicky Lester, and she's like, oh, I like that. It is the most unhinged little moment. I don't know. Vicky Lester, to me, doesn't exactly roll off the tongue, but I guess it did no. in 1937. I don't see it. Vicky Vicky is like what I always think about when I hear the name Vicky. I think of Vicky Gunvalson from Real Housewives of Orange County. <laughs> Wasn't it that her middle name was Victoria and that's where they pulled that Mm -hmm. from? The name Victoria to me is more grand. Like that would have been a star's name, you know? Uh Yeah. It's very sassy and formal at the same time. Mm -hmm. It works. Yeah. And then in the 54 version, she's Esther Hoffman and he's Norman Maine. We keep Norman Maine, but she changes her name to Vicky Lester. In the 76 version, we have Esther Hoffman and John Norman. So like you were saying, the Maine is just gone. Mm-hmm. John Norman, very basic standard name here. And then we completely pivot, except for him. He's Jackson Maine this time. So we bring the Maine back, get a new first name. And she is Ali Campana. Do we know the origins of Campana or can I tell everyone a little story? Please. I didn't know there even was a surname. So Bradley Cooper's mom... Her name is Gloria Campano. That was her maiden name. So that's where mm. Campana comes from. Oh, I from. love that. That's a treat. That's, that's lovely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the interesting things, I think, with the names across the movies is how they introduce themselves. At the end of the 54 version, she makes a point to say, I'm Mrs. Norman Maine. But in the 76 version, Barbara Streisand would never give herself the man's name. Because it's Mm-mm. the 70s, you know, it's women's lib. It's also completely just antithetical to, I think, who Barbara Streisand was as a person at the time and what she believed. So she actually pushes back against that and is not Mrs. Norman Maine here. Like, she she has her own, her own identity. Like you guys said, it really does capture the zeitgeist of the moment, which I think mm-hmm. is cool. Even if it's a troubled journey to get there with Barbara in particular, but... <laughs> What did you have trouble with with Barbara? I I despised that movie, the nineteen seventy. <laughs> you and me both. <gasps> oh my god! Some reviewer called it a star is boring, and I could not have agreed more. And I thought that she was chaotic and just not. Maybe we'll have to wait. I mean, I guess we're not going film by film, but in my opinion, like she, I didn't believe that she was like a nobody turned into a star like at all throughout it. Yeah. I thought she was kind of doing just fine at the beginning, and then like I, I did not even believe 
that she was a rock star. I don't really know the angle they were going for, but it was in all these odd, like Coachella-esque performances or like live aid vibes with like these big outdoor venues. And the people in the audience did not even look like they would be her fans. It was so bizarre. Like she was singing like mm-hmm. adult contemporary music to them. <laughs> in and a her neck garments. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was so weird. Her Maybe that was, was what wild. the time was though. I don't know. To me, like this is such a dull 70s movie. Like I love movies from the 70s and this just has none of the the style that the 70s movies that I love have. And I think what's cool about A Star is Born is that like we were talking about with the zeitgeist and capturing the moment, we change industries throughout really smartly. So in the first one in 1937, this is coming at a time where the studios are you know, feeling good about themselves and they want to bring people into Hollywood. You can make it here. You can be a star. If Esther Blodgett can, so can you. And then in the 54 version, pivoting to the movie musical when these big studio movies are very popular again like that's a smart choice and it is smart i think to make the 76 version about rock stars like that was what was happening at the time but the fact that joan didion wrote this it floors me i know and i don't know if the writing is the problem entirely or if it's just the performances or for me the lack of chemistry at all between barbara streisand and chris christopherson Watching the 76 version and their romance to the 2018 version is like night and day Mm -hmm. to me. 100%. I was really disappointed by the 76 version. I mean, I was talking to my parents about it and they watched it with me Mm -hmm. or Dylan, our parents famously. Um, They had like fond (laughs) memories of going to see it in the movies. Evergreen was on the radio for months and months and months, kind of like Shallow was, I suppose. And I was really disappointed and I felt that the 76 version failed at really inviting us into the industry. I don't know, for some reason it felt like the love story took center stage on that one, but not in a good way. <laughs> I mean, like there's there's a, an extended sequence where, you know, he has this plot of land and they're building the house. And I did love the set of the 76 one, don't get me wrong there. I thought that, you know, it, it really looked great and expensive at, at different times, but it just didn't feel, well, okay, except with the exception of the scene where she accepts her award in the 76 one, it looked like like a bad SAG awards in like a conference hall. And his acting was so, Chris Christopherson's acting, drunk acting, I should say, was so bad. I, I wasn't expecting that because Bradley does it so well in the 2018 version. But Chris was, it was silly. It was really silly watching him try to act. Well, let me plead for his his acting in that moment because I, right. I actually wasn't as upset. I felt like he was more of a functioning alcoholic slash addict than I think we've seen in a lot of the other ones. Okay. They didn't hit us over the head with anything in that movie, except for when they start fighting. But what about when he rides the sex. motorcycle off the stage? But he, I didn't read him as being drunk in that moment because we don't have enough of a POV from him. I don't know. It was just weird. That's true. I feel like in, like, at least in the 2018 one, you always see Bradley, like, or, oh my God, Bradley. I'm, I'm like, I should probably call them by their character names, right? Um, we see Jackson, like, you know, slugging a, a drink. and He's kind of got it dripping off his beard, you know. Going back to the 76 one, it was such a letdown for me. And the musical moments are obviously great. Barbara's voice is beyond. There's no arguing that. Like, she sounds unbelievable. But to Dylan's point, in doing research about that one, it was fascinating to hear about how troubled the production was 
in more ways than one with her involvement, with her boyfriend's involvement, with the way she, you know, I think when you have a star in a producing or directing capacity on a film, especially where the stakes feel as high as they do in a, in a star is born, it could go one of two ways. It could go the Barbara way or it could go the Bradley way. And I think Bradley really succeeded in acting and writing and directing it. And I feel like Barbara's starring in it and also her involvement in it generally just, it, it made the movie fail for me. Well, hold on to your bootstraps because I did not hate this version. Oh, I was gonna say, is this the one seventies movie you like? Maybe LB? the second, but yes, <laughs> I I didn't hate it. So my my thoughts more. about Tell like the more. music and how lasting that is is different from the actual version. But I think if we look at this and not the twenty eighteen version, as if we were in the seventies and we're looking back through the different versions we have, this to me was the most convincing in this being a real couple with real issues with John Norman having an addiction problem. And I thought the scene on the stage where he takes the motorcycle and rides it around, I was like, holy crap, this guy is crazy, but I believed it. And I think from there, it set the characters up better for me. The problem I guess I have with the story is like you have these actresses who are either at their peak or almost past their peak to the point that they are stars by the time they make these movies. Judy was really well known for at least The Wizard of Oz. She had so many other works too. And Barbara had already won her Oscar. So it's so hard to see them when you're starting these movies as nobodies, which I like in the Judy version because she's somewhat of a performer already. She's not like a nobody like Janet Gaynor's character was. That is the nitpick with Streisand mm -hmm. I think I have is she's a beautiful singer. Why is she in this basement bar singing where fights erupt and she has to leave through the back door? That just doesn't seem like her character. But I don't know. There was something that worked for me in that chemistry and with her music seeming more organic. And I like the scene on stage where he kind of forces her on and she starts singing and everyone is booing. And she starts to sing regardless, and then they start to love her, which is a little cheesy, but... It's just so Streisand. That's why it's so funny to me. It's so her. Uh -huh. It introduces her to this world that didn't really know her, and then I think her rise to fame is more believable than the previous versions. Also, she's like not obsessed with him at all, whereas the Gainer version, all she wanted was Norman Maine. It was such this ideal, and again, that might be a Streisand thing, but for her to not care about him and to continue with like her path forward, becoming a star, was, I think, maybe a version of the story that I wanted to see differently. The thing with the Streisand version, too, that bugged me was that we find it believable that she's a star because she's Barbara Streisand and she sings, I mean... Her mm -hmm. voice. Unreal. Unreal. It really is. Just one of the greatest of all time. And she has so much charisma and she's so committed in the part. But it's not believable from the script or the filmmaking why he would want to scoop her up and bring her into stardom. Like there isn't that scene that the other versions have where they convincingly, I think, connect 
and he wants to bring her into his world. And that first concert scene took me aback because he just brings her there and she doesn't do anything. He, he ruins that show. And then when it's finally time for her to go, I think what I love about the 2018 version is that Jackson Maine helps Allie to feel comfortable. Like he introduces her, they duet. You believe in their connection on stage together as performers. And you believe that he wants to introduce her in that way to the world. Whereas this just feels like Streisand wanted to do a set completely alone for a few songs (laughs) because that's what she does (laughs) which I'm not going to complain about my favorite parts of of the movie are just watching her sing because she's so amazing Mm -hmm. but it just doesn't it doesn't convince me their relationship never convinced me no the last eight minutes are my favorite part where it's just the camera pretty steady on her singing Mm -hmm. her heart out and then the way that she looks up into the sky but The first thing I did when I finished it was I switched over to my Netflix app and I added her her concert to my queue, which I've watched before her. She has like a Netflix concert special because that's all I would rather watch. Like, I can't Mm -hmm. wait to watch it sometime soon where she tells all these amazing stories and sings. Like, from what I understand that she edited this movie or had a heavy hand in editing a lot of it, it just didn't end up working. I don't know what was left on the cutting room floor or, or what, but he wasn't mesmerized with her. She wasn't mesmerized with him. In the way that Jackson and Allie were, I mean, like when when they meet, and then what I do love about that lead up to when he brings her on stage too, at the for the first time, is it's such a whirlwind, and she really gets caught up, and it's like such a, a microcosm of like fame and like the the it's almost like an like an allegorical thing of like it happens overnight sometimes, and like all of a sudden, like mm-hmm. she's whisked out of this. Is she in a, a helicopter or a plane? And then they're taken out, and Anthony she Ramos that, is in the like, background. Yeah, mm-hmm. from right from her like catering job. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like, it's, oh my God, like, of course you're getting swooshed up in this fairy tale mm-hmm. romance. And of course she already liked him. And he's like so intrigued by her because we saw in the La Vie Rose scene. So it's just, I don't know, it's really interesting that Barbara's sort of, what's the right word? Um, what, what, what is that when you do something? Oh, when you neuter, when you neuter a pet, it sort of neuters any romance out of it. <laughs> Also, my biggest, one of my bigger complaints is, and I don't know, I didn't look up the IMDb at the end. The only two black characters in the movie were named one of the Oreos, like those two women. Backup singers. According to the Amazon credits that you can like see when you're watching it. Oh my God. Seriously? We're reducing them to not only like a stupid race joke, but like not even giving them names. Those poor women. That's tough. Joan yeah. Didion knows better. Joan knows better. Joan Didion knows better. I, I have to believe Joan, you know, maybe maybe she was pushed aside by the other politics happening on that set. So Yeah. I do have a very hot take about this movie though. I'm ready. I think Barbara Streisand should have directed it. Ooh. I want to see that version. Mm-hmm. I yes. love that idea. She should have. And- she had yet to direct Yentl, right? Right. She and the thing is though, and she she wanted to at a point, but she was worried about her relationship with John Peters, I think, and what would happen, you know, if she took the directing job because originally he was going to direct it, but everyone in Hollywood said this movie is not going to be taken seriously at all. This is a joke. It's going to be a catastrophe, not in terms of box office, but just in terms of what it's going to become. So they decided that he shouldn't direct it, that he should step back. Of course, he's this like very controversial producer, which ironically, Bradley Cooper plays him in Licorice Pizza, another A Star is Born 
Oh my gosh. Wait, Wait. yes. Because they're in Barbara's house. Yes. And apparently, Barbara Streisand, when she signed on to do this movie and she read the script and read about the character of John Norman, she was surprised because he was a Gemini who drove a red Ferrari. And John Peters was also a Gemini who drove a red Ferrari. Wow. The 70s. Wow, wow, wow. I love Barbara, I have to say, I, I freaking love her. Yeah, but... I do too. <laughs> I do too. And I love a diva, but it sounds like mm-hmm. her diva involvement on this wasn't the fun kind of diva behavior. I don't know. But you guys know I love stuff like this though. Like we talked yeah. about Faye Dunaway earlier this year. I just when I see certain decisions in movies that Barbara Streisand is in, I just think I know what's behind this and I love it so giving her more power like a more focused amount of power i think would have been very i don't know i just want to see that version of the movie and what it would have turned into Hmm. i'm with you (laughs) um we touched on janet gainer a little bit with the 37 version and i'm kind of wondering were you guys familiar with janet gainer before any of her films had you seen anything that she'd been in no. I don't think so. I think that she was miscast in this movie. Drama. I just didn't. <laughs> no. I'm sorry. I do promise I'll get positive. No, but you're being I... fun stuff. <laughs> I just, I just, um, I didn't think she was very strong in it. I, I actually liked her better at the beginning of the movie mm-hmm. than as it progressed. But perhaps that was just something of the time. And I'm curious who else might have been up for it. I don't know if we know any of that. Well, I texted Nick this when I was watching the 37 version about how I wish this was Barbara Stanwyck so badly because she is just, she has Mm -hmm. that glamour that is so believable at the time that she, she can really play anything. And the story for A Star is Born is based on her relationship with Frank Fay. Like, she was the Esther Alley character in real life. Oh. So I feel like that could have been good. But the thing about Janet Gaynor that's interesting, and Nick, you mentioned this with Gaga and Streisand and Judy Garland, but Janet Gaynor was the first person to win Best Actress at the Oscars. She won in 1929. So she also had already been someone who had been really successful already in the film industry she won for three movies. They used to, like in the early, early days, they would give an Oscar for multiple films. So she won for Seventh Heaven, Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans, and Street Angel. Wow, that is fascinating. Okay, we should bring it back for yeah. Jacob Elordi's run this year for Saltburn and Priscilla, of course. Oh, so wow. we're set. The we're hottest set. nominations in history. <laughs> but yeah, Janet, I didn't connect with her necessarily. But I did connect with Frederick March because I found him to be extremely hot. And I think if we're ranking the hot male leads in A Star is Born, he comes at number two for me. I thought he was, I totally get why she would have been as obsessed with him as she was. And that 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 did click for me for sure. And there are things I liked about the 37 version that there are aspects to it that I wish were more prevalent in the subsequent films. I loved that she had a strong female influence in her life. Her iconic grandmother, who I'm obsessed with, was obsessed with from moment one. 
And mm-hmm. she said something to her like, you know, when when a dream comes true, you'll pay it back in heartbreak or something like that. I wish I would have written it down, but it was it was that good of a line for 1937 that I was like, I'm putting this in my head. And then it comes back at the end of the film. But I loved that the story itself is bookended with, you know, the script mm-hmm. for the story, which I thought was interesting. But mm-hmm. then also with appearances by her grandmother is just at the beginning, just at the end. And I felt like, you know, the other female leads in the other movies don't have a female influence in their lives. And I wish that they had that. You know, Gaga has Anthony Ramos, who I mean, her appearances from Willem and Shangela don't count as female uh, <laughs> influences. Okay, Allie's got a queer influence, for sure. <laughs> she does. And I do mm-hmm. also think her manager was gay. But we'll get to that when we get more into the 2018 version. But um, yeah, in 1937, for me, it was all about it was all about her grandmother. <laughs> and I thought he was really I thought he was hot and I thought he was a good actor, too. And um, I had seen since I saw the Judy one before I saw the Janet one, I I was struck with how similar the structure mostly is to the whole story. I mean, down to the final sequence, which I don't know if I want to spoil yet. But did you guys like Frederick with with uh, with Janet? I think he's great. I think in terms mm-hmm. of performances from the male lead, he's my second favorite after Bradley yeah. Cooper. I feel like he he's really believable as that particular type of star in that time. And if you're someone who... I'm going to defend Jana Gaynor a little bit. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> I, love- <laughs> I didn't know she was so decorated. Now, all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, my God, I feel like it's, I just spit on no, her No, no, no. It's but- totally, it's a time period thing, I think, and just like a more of a house style, I would say, from these actresses who kind of came up then. But, I mean, in thinking of the actresses who are nominated in 37, we have three women there, Barbara Stanwyck, Irene Dunn, and Greta Garbo, who I feel like are, they have that kind of glamour that you think of that you would associate with people of this time that Janet Gaynor doesn't have necessarily. And I don't mean that to sound critical of her or mean in any way, but I do think the Midwestern wide-eyed quality helps the audience connect with her in a way. She sees Hollywood and we feel the same way that she does. And This movie was all about creating a surrogate for that type of experience, I think, at the time. So, I don't know. I think there's something where when you watch her performance, even if you know that she's won the Oscar before, you kind of forget. Because she is so believable as this girl who comes from North Dakota, Esther Blodgett, with her grandmother in the snow, going to L.A. and figuring out, you know, how to make it and going through that process that was so everyone had to do it at the time you get recognized then you end up you know doing the screen test working a job that's unrelated but hoping that it somehow pays off and you meet somebody getting a new name and what that process looks like and new appearance everything like that and then suddenly the audience can see that and connect and think well, Hollywood's not a bad place. I should do it too. I could do this too. So it's kind of like Hollywood propaganda in a way, which is fun. (laughs) It's interesting for the time. But yeah, so I think in terms of that type of character, she's successful in what the film wants that version of the character to be. But I was much more drawn to Frederick March. (laughs) Me too. Yeah. I would say. Yeah. For sure. He's a great actor, too. One best actor for the best years of our lives, which is an all-timer. You guys did a, you guys recapped yeah. that on a pod once, didn't you? Mm-hmm. We yeah, always we did a William Wyler episode. 
Yeah, it's so good. Oh, and I love him in that. He's so amazing. He is really good. I just... James Mason and Frederick March are just not doing anything for me. I'm sorry. <laughs> I love that it took an hour into recording for James Mason to be mentioned in a, <laughs> I know. In a critical way. <laughs> yeah. I agree. The star, he is not to me. But anyway. The story about him was that Cucor went to Brando when they were filming Julius Caesar and was like, hey, do you want to play Norman Maine? And he was like, you want me to be a wash up? No, look over there and like pointed to James Mason. And then ah. here he is. Oh. Wow. <laughs> so Brando. What's, what's interesting about that, though, too, is that for the 76 version, Streisand liked Marlon Brando for the oh part God. so much that she almost told them that they didn't need for it to be a musical. Wow. Rumor has it. Wow. I don't buy that. Okay. I feel like she would have needed the songs. She would have wanted the songs, but I mean it basically remained that way. He didn't he did when he sang Chris Christopherson, he moaned in that piano scene for Evergreen. <laughs> I mean it was and she's like, wow. Like she's that's the only time I felt that she was mesmerized by him was his moans. Because <laughs> she realized, oh, I am the star here. He doesn't have it. I guess he doesn't have to sing. Because he didn't in the he, but he, in the Judy well, he's one. a rock star though. Oh, true, yeah. true. Yeah. It, you're right. In the in the in the text of the '76, he would be a rock star, mm -hmm. wouldn't he? Yeah, mm. yeah. About James Mason for a second. No, I feel the same way about him in the movie to a point where I would say that my one fault in the '54 version is that when I watch them together for a good portion of the movie. I have to think, do they like each other or is this like strictly a professional relationship? Because there's just nothing happening for me between the two of them. And James Mason, though, I think he's a great drunk actor. I mean, he is a great actor. But the thing that makes him a great drunk actor is that he talks through his teeth, which is such an interesting detail that he includes. And his, I mean, he's known for his voice, I would say. And the voice is great. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. But I just don't, I think earlier in the movie, especially them falling in love and that relationship escalating is hard for me to track. Especially mm -hmm. since there's so much lost footage. But I feel like it probably wouldn't have helped because I agree with you. I don't <laughs> think they had much chemistry. I, I would not have fallen for him like she did. But he wrote the he wrote the initials and lipstick and it stayed there for years and years. So, you know. Yeah. I, Sophia, you're onto something. You're onto something with that. It, it must have been an arrangement because she was she was lured in by the idea. Like he convinced her not to go to the next like tour date mm -hmm. because he's like, oh, I'm going to set you up with all these things. I'm going to make you a star. And so it was truly a professional thing. It had to have been. And he saw that he was good. She was good with him when she was able to turn his embarrassing moment into something that looked like a funny bit when he was on stage. And yeah. so I think that they both saw something in each other, like oh, like maybe this is of convenience for both of us. Mm -hmm. hmm. I don't know. Of, of the first three movies, theirs is my favorite meeting of each other and like the discovery of the talent because the scene when we were first introduced to Judy Garland, you know instantly that mm -hmm. she's it. You can just tell that she's a star and why someone would want to build that up or use that in any way that they could or that they would see that potential because it's already there but it makes sense to why she would want to elevate it because she does have it in the same way that Allie does later on 
but yeah, I love that, that scene that plays on, I think both of their characteristics, right? Like her adaptability and playfulness and skill as a performer and his drunkenness and also his ability to be thinking about the industry and where she wants to go. And I feel like it's just such a smart introduction to both of those characters and how they work together. Another fun fact from this one, did anyone catch Norman's real name? Ernest Sidney Gubbins? What's worse, that or Blodgett? (laughs) Well, I love this detail because they don't do this in the other ones, but the, the change in the name for him is so interesting because it comes up in really funny ways. When it comes up at the wedding, that is, that takes me out. It makes me really sad because you realize that she doesn't know him and that they've only known certain versions of each other that are these like performative alternate realities of what happens to you when you get to LA. It reminds me a lot of Mulholland Drive in a weird way. So it comes up at the wedding for the first time and then it comes up again when they're in court Mm -hmm. and then it's like the two big life events for their relationship in terms of you know where that name comes up then all of a sudden you hear that and it's like oh he is just this human after all he isn't this star this like larger than life person even though that is what gets him out of that situation which i think is such a bizarre scene in court when she's just she just talks to the judge and she's like this won't happen again i -hmm. promise i'm going to take care of him and he just says okay reduce sentence Mm -hmm. fine he's not going to jail actually he's gonna be at home with you in your care and custody but yeah i think it coming up for him and it being really the only time it comes up for the man across the movies is really interesting it's like a hobbit name <laughs> he lives down the street from the baggins says <laughs> right like for, yeah well yeah. the 54 one for me i think it's a masterpiece to be honest with you it's i know we have some missing footage and they i mean in the versions that i've seen they put the production photography in and use the audio that's salvaged so i mean maybe you guys can explain it better but basically like the version that is out now the the almost three hour version was the intended iteration of a star is born but then movie theaters couldn't show it as many times a day they want to make more money so they ended up cutting it down and then most they never saved the actual footage but some projectionists did save the audio is that the idea behind that and then they filled it back in when they restored the film and in a way other than that <laughs> complicated little thing i threw out there i think it's fantastic i love it it's long it is long but it's great and judy is a star it's i think her best performance her voice is magnificent i could watch her do the man that got away again and again and again and again and it it is just breathtaking. You, you know, even if you're like multitasking, you just get sucked in. She's incredible. She's incredible. Mm-hmm. I think her acting is fantastic. And we talked about this a little bit via text message, but it's really interesting to think about her life and what was going on with her and how she is sort of the, you know, the Jackson Norman main character mm-hmm. in her own personal life, which was tragic, tragic, mm-hmm. tragic. But maybe it helped her connect to the piece more. I hope I hope she was self-aware enough that she knew that it was her. 
so first, like getting to your point about the the splicing together and the cutting and everything, that's right. And Jack Warner just hacked it to pieces so that it could be played multiple times because it was too long. I do love that this movie has an intermission. I love a good old intermission in oh, yeah. my long epics. But I read this interview with Lorna Luft, Judy Garland's daughter. And one of the things that she said about this movie that was interesting was and really sad was that there are only a few people who actually got to see the original cut as it was, and it would have only been in existence for two weeks. So if you think about that, that's really crazy. Like, mm-hmm. in terms of just film preservation and restoration, but also in the priorities of the studios and Judy Garland had had such a difficult, really track record and career with the studios. She had been fired and lost her contract with MGM uh, before this movie happened. So yeah, I think that the connections to Norman Maine are Mm -hmm. dark and they also get darker after the world of the film. Right. Like that's the hard part is that before this movie, she was in a point in her career where she was trying to rebuild it. And A Star is Born really was the perfect project for that. And her husband at the time knew that um, as well. And then it just it gets worse for her after this movie, really, and thinking about her problems with addiction as well. Yeah. To your point about her rebuilding a career, I, I read that it was her comeback after four years and it should have been this, this moment for her. I, I, you know, I, I wish that she had been able to sustain a stronger career with as stronger performances as she had in this movie going forward. But it was really sad to see, I mean, and, and to read about, but and also to know like what happens to Judy beyond it. During production, she was sick and the length of production actually extended so long because she couldn't be on set and at one point she was going through rehab trying to get off prescription pills so yeah there's a lot of inherent trauma in the story and probably what she was living through i don't know if any of that is public of her having an issue with the script and what that meant to her but i can imagine it just being so dark and i think she plays someone who is so strong in the film And immediately from that scene on stage where she's dancing, trying to cover him up, she has to act so quickly. She flips that switch and not only the light guy trying to not show them dancing, but her masking his drunkenness is so sharp. Even if I'm not a fan of the movie, I think her performance is just insane because of how deeply emotional she is throughout. The songs, I think, are incredible. I could also listen to The Man That Got Away over and over, and I have the past few days, <laughs> because it, it's heartbreaking, and she absolutely captures that throughout the entire movie. Yeah. I read that they only did that, like, two or three takes of that scene, and it's one shot, the entire thing. Just unbelievable. Ugh. I imagine that's what her concerts were probably like, watching her do a number like that, you know? Mm-hmm. So, Nick, is this year on the record, not a fan of 19... 19- 54. I'm not. And maybe part of that is in that relationship that you guys have talked about and like not believing in it. I think maybe it's just not a time period that I would have wanted to live in either. I think with the 70s, 
I mean, you guys don't like that movie. That's fine. But it, <laughs> it maybe not romanticized the 70s, but it felt so gritty and real that I wanted to be there. And this was just very different for Hollywood. I don't know. This was like the golden age. You have movie musicals. And I, yeah, maybe that's just not my favorite world. And that's okay. This is one is my favorite of the four, for sure, because I think it's it's fully a musical and the the theater gay in me of course is like gagged for for judy throughout the entire thing but i i love what you said about how emotional she is and i have to think that maybe that was her own self-awareness coming through and like i mean you have to think like what her her gay husbands or her young children (laughs) handling her like when she was having moments of slip-ups in her sobriety you have to be like, oh my God, like this is a mirror reflecting me now, you know, like when she's covering up for him or even at the end. And although it is a silly moment, Sophia, I completely agree with you when she ultimately gets his charges dropped at the night court, (laughs) her delivery of like, I'll do it, I'll take care of him, to me is like heartbreaking. It's so powerful. And as we're talking about the man that got away, it's the song is like truly the movie in a song. That's where she's left at the end. And Oh, the theme is just so incredible and I mean it should have won best song but <laughs> it should have it definitely should have I really love this version and one of the things I really like about it is that it plays with what she wants to do so well like be this star of a movie musical and she is the star of a movie musical it works in that layered way where you I think that's the believable part for me Even if it's not, you know, her relationship with James Mason, which is really heartbreaking in certain things. I do think it's because Judy just cranks it up and she knows she knows what to do in those scenes. But if a movie is called A Star is Born, I want to see that star power, that transformation, that person who you believe is this otherworldly presence that you have to actually discover. And that's what she is in this movie. And I think that the Born in the Trunk sequence, Uh. having that sequence just dropped in the middle of an already three-hour film is very bold. And it's so... I, I just think she is incredible in that scene as she's telling the story of her life, going from different styles of choreography to different costumes to different like styles of performance it is a tour de force performance that i think is honestly one of the best things that we have on film from a performer i totally agree (laughs) it's really (laughs) she's amazing that born in the trunk sequence i think solidified the costume design nomination Oh, yeah. Well, and that sequence is very long. It is long. I will say that. And I know it was added later quite controversially. But Mm -hmm. even when she's not the best dancer in the lineup or, you know, she's not quite nailing the moment or whatever, you cannot help but watch her. She's a star. She's got that special thing. She really does. I love her in that. I mean, I I think it's a robbery that she didn't win (laughs) the Oscar for this role. And, you know, in doing research... On this movie, I, of course, had to look into that Oscar ceremony and find out, you know, the lore behind Grace Kelly and why she won or probably why she won at the time. And it was just really, really interesting. And I think 
also representative of Judy's tragic life. You know, she mm -hmm. had all this potential and she had all this talent, but it never really seemed to land in the moment. Of course, now she's legend. I mean, Wizard of Oz, Somewhere Over the Rainbow and everything. I mean, the Renee Zellweger film about her, you know, I mean, Judy Stop. has been cement oh. jump scare has been cemented <laughs> in history as this star. But when you look back on it, she had such a troubled time, which is really, really sad to think about. Mm -hmm. That's why the Oscar scene in the movie makes me so sad because you see her getting recognition from her peers and how that feels for the character. And it just feels, again, like you, you think about her in real life as a person who was not the Grace Kelly of her time. Like, Grace Kelly was a princess, literally. And was just this perfect depiction of what everyone wanted women to be. And the fact that Judy Garland lost to her. I mean, I love Grace Kelly. I love her in Rear Window. That's we love. my preferred movie <laughs> of that year. But... It's sad, I think, that Judy Garland lost to someone she could never be. Mm -hmm. Like, it's just, and that they wanted her to be, but it was just never in the cards for her. And that was because Hollywood wanted the image to be a certain way? Do you think that, mm -hmm. that was, it's so it was, it's always been political. Oh, yeah. And I think in the 50s, especially, like, Nick, you talking about not liking that time period. Like, the 50s is all about this curated, romanticized depiction of American life or of glamour and that's why these big studio movie musicals were so successful at the time too they presented this this fantasy version of life that connected with people and I love those musicals I love this one uh, but it definitely like they existed in that time for a reason yeah Nick I have to ask I know you didn't like the film overall, but what were your favorite parts about it, about the 54 one, if you had to choose? Just because we all loved it. I, I don't know. Your face oh is priceless right now. I wish oh this wasn't an audio. <laughs> I do like that early scene on stage. I do like seeing her perform. I guess going into it with my idea of what movie musicals were, and I guess having seen like the 2018 version, and how those songs kind of further who these characters are. That sequence, I was like, are we just watching Judy Garland sing? Like, is this uh, a, oh, a sold-out show now? Because I didn't, I kind of lost where we were. And she became this star, and then we get the intermission. Like, I, I get that. But I was like, is this a one-woman show now? Because thinking back, I'm like, where is Norman Maine? He's, I mean, he's drunk somewhere, but he's kind of just totally flown my memory of this movie. Yeah, mm. I, that's totally fair because he doesn't pop for me really at all. When I think about the movie, I think about her. So that's totally fair. And it's not that like the movie failed. It's, I think, just different structurally than maybe the others. I mean, I do like certain sequences that they include. I think the court one, as silly as it does sound, I think it works. So there are things about it that I like it's not the movie that I dislike I think just the version of the story that I had trouble with mm -hmm. it is unbalanced I think the, yeah. the love story for sure mm -hmm. I think what's interesting about some of the scenes in this are that I actually think they inspired Bradley Cooper for Maestro oh. not for A Star is Born he obviously was super familiar with it so it was in his head I mean my thing was there's a line in the 76 version where she talks about her nose 
Oh, we haven't even talked about the iconic. Just want to get one more look at you. There's so, I wow. Know. No, I know. <laughs> There's so much we can. I know. <laughs> she goes, Barbara Streisand's characters saying, my nose is too big. And I think that informed Maestro more than it did A Star is Born, even though we repeat that line with Lady Gaga. <laughs> Are you talking about the prosthetic nose, Nick? <laughs> I think Bradley's relationship with effects in a way i guess that could be prosthetics but like even just his spray tan and how he applied that weekly during a star is born to look weathered listen (laughs) sophia your face just now (laughs) i'm losing it (laughs) i think he gets who his characters are and it could be seen as funny in a way but i think it's really powerful He understands them on like a molecular level. And looking back at these other movies, I think he takes the right parts from them into his version. I think he does too. Um, But the interesting thing that he does, he makes it a movie about Jackson. Mm -hmm. Like he, I think by the end of the movie, like he does make it a movie about that character more than about Allie. And you can like that or dislike that. I think that what he does to that character is smart in a lot of ways because he gives him more substance. Like in earlier versions, we don't know much about this character at all. We don't know where he comes from. And he doesn't have this sort of vulnerability, I think, that this version does because we know more about his family. We know about his history with mental illness and addiction. And he makes that character way more well-rounded but there is an interesting conversation to be had I think around Bradley Cooper's films and how he centers the women in the film while also giving the character that he plays a very specific sort of focus I will just say that Um, Mm. because I think that it's evident in Maestro as well but not to the extent that it is here for me where I love the 2018 version but for me it almost loses my interest when we get to the second half because I just, I I miss the electricity of the first part. And that's also the point, right? Like you feel that, that rise is always, it always feels different than the fall. Mm -hmm. But I do think that he, he turns this story ultimately not necessarily into a story about her, but a story about the Norman Maine, Jackson Maine character. Yeah, very true. And that was one of my biggest issues with the 2018 one when I first saw it. I mean, I think everyone who saw that movie can agree. You sit down the first 45 to an hour, you're like, is this the best movie I've ever seen in my entire life? I'm just kidding. But honestly, it's so (laughs) well paced. The storytelling Mm -hmm. is fantastic. Their chemistry is beyond as we see her star rise. And to your point, Sophia, you're right. The second half is while her star rises, then his star has to fall in the second part to you know, live up to the prophecy of what the film promises. And it's clearly not as fun of a ride. But in in a rewatch of the 2018 one, which I've seen several times over the years, I was surprised at how she is still, in the Alley character, is still so present through the second half of the mm-hmm. film. It's not, she does not disappear at all. In fact, we still know so many things about her. You know, there's a scene where her share her hair is dyed to the orange that it becomes. And Jackson's, you know, he's like, was that your idea? He's talking to the manager. And the manager's like, no, actually, it was hers. And we don't see her make that decision, but we still know. I think we have to believe that she has the agency that she does in her career as it moves forward. At least we hope. 
And mm-hmm. I agree for as mm. much as I love the 2018 one, the second half, I, I was like, oh, this is long. But the first bit went by in a in a blip. It's really so good. I don't know if it's necessarily a bad thing that he wants that he's more interested in the story about the fading star than the rising one, I think. I mean, it, unless he d- picks one for each half, I think because he is our we're with him the whole time. Mm-hmm. And and I think that that's a story that I'm willing to be convinced otherwise of right now is not told otherwise. And I don't think it's an interesting vehicle without, you know, like when they launch like space thing into things into space and there's that like starter thing that like helps propel them and then it breaks off and then the other one keeps going. (laughs) He's that piece that's falling. That's not the movie you want to watch, but like, I don't think that there's necessarily a way to watch that movie with interest otherwise. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I, I think it's okay because, and this was news to me, but Nick or Sophia, one of you alluded to Cooper having substance abuse issues in real life. Yeah. I didn't know about that. And so I think maybe that's why he wanted to perhaps spotlight that a little bit more, because as we see with all the Jacksons and the Normans and the John and the, and the Judy herself, not the character, it often doesn't end well, Mm -hmm. you know? So. Well, I, I remember from that season because I just took in everything related to this movie. I was so excited about it and really loved it so much. But I remember one of the things that Bradley Cooper said about fame is that he wanted to represent it. I think, I wish I could remember what this was from. It was from an interview that he did around the time that of the, you know, in award season press where he wanted to represent fame sonically, becoming a star through sound. What does it sound like? And he said that he remembered that when you become famous or when you achieve that, it's all noise. Like, it's very loud. And then suddenly, I remember him saying, you're alone with a box of Cheez-Its. It's silent, and you're just, like, a normal person again. But it, there isn't a switch. You can never really escape it. But if you try to, it's very extreme. He also, right, is the only version of the character we have who directed the film. Which is part mm-hmm. of the reason why I said I was curious what Streisand's version would have looked like if she directed the 76 version. Because I think that in directing it it makes sense that he wanted to build out that character more and show all of the nasty sides I think to fame and what it can do to you especially with with addiction issues and yeah Bradley Cooper he's sober now but previously he had a lot of issues with alcohol so that is something where like I'm sure he had to dig into that a bit um, in preparing for the role too and he is tremendous in that movie mm-hmm. it, it oh, is yeah. i think one of my favorite acting performances of his if not my favorite i mean i did love him in maestro which is why this is hard i know dylan you haven't seen it yet but yeah, i'm the lone the lone one everything he put into it i mean with his voice and nick the spray tan he is so good and his chemistry mm-hmm. with gaga is beyond i mean i love them together I wrote in my notes when I was watching this this movie, I said, finally, a version where I believe the characters love each other. Yes. Yes. And you see you see it from the start. They're cute little. Yes. It sort of feels like an endless night of him seeing her at mm-hmm. the bar and falling in love with her talent. And then she's watching him sing. And, you know, she but in an intimate way. Parking lot. The parking lot. Them sitting, <sighs> yes. Them sitting on those like out in the parking lot together with the frozen peas on her hand. <laughs> mm-hmm. When they're walking through the grocery store, too. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's so cute and so well written I mean it felt like in ways oh this is like what first 
dates are kind of like you talk about weird things you don't i don't know you kind of just see where it goes and the way they connect it's really really astounding and then shallow happens and the children were gagged for the rest of their lives and it, do you remember <laughs> when that trailer dropped and and all you heard was the ah that whole thing oh, oh yeah. my god I saw drag queens doing that in mixes before the full song was even released. Like it, it people, it changed the world. I think, I think the world stopped. We were never the same never. after that trailer. <laughs> that should, that trailer should win best trailer at the Oscars because mm-hmm. you have the shot of her from the best beginning of the movie film. when mm-hmm. she's like, yeah, short film. <laughs> if Taylor Swift's all too well music video can be submitted. I think the a star is born trailer should be submitted well, they said no to that <laughs> yeah, they did they, they did, did say, say no they did say yeah. no um when like when gaga's like screaming at the ground and it it is such a well put together trailer and it thrills me every time mm-hmm. oh, oh it's such so a good. good trailer it's just an electric scene and i wrote down all of the same things in my notes it's shallow is the best movie song we've ever gotten ever and <laughs> It's a perfect 45 minutes of a movie, maybe ever, and then it peaks with Shallow. But I think including being at Coachella, for people who know what Coachella looks like, it's just a magical situation to be in. Not even thinking about being in the audience where, thank God, like they kept their phones and none of this was leaked before that movie came out because it absolutely would have changed how we see that scene but being on stage behind jackson and seeing him like swig his gin before he's performing i even love the songs that only he is in himself and that's one thing that is singular for me is in the other versions like do away with norman or john norman like i this is the only one I remember because yeah. they like really sang on set. Gaga insisted that they actually sing so it didn't look fake and him having to do voice lessons and actually sing like it helps make this character more realistic. And I think that was really essential for this character and in Cooper's direction of himself. He's so incredible in this movie. Mm-hmm. I, you, you guys know, maybe you can describe my fan relationship with Bradley Cooper better than I can. How long it's been going it's on. It's a treat. It's a treat to see that you've held on and that he hasn't disappointed. And you've loved him through some rough moments. And <laughs> it's special too, because you have, it has like a, something to stand on with this, especially like this being like the center of it all. Something too about the vulnerability, like, I don't know if I've ever seen a, a a healthy level of masculinity displayed on screen as when he pisses himself and looks like a baby and Gaga has to, like, well, I mean, Allie in that moment, like, really tries to cover the whole thing up. It's, mm-hmm. to me, like, it just shows, like, he really gave us all the d- the dynamics of, of of this character and what could make it a successful portrayal, and so... I, I really think that they nailed he he specifically nailed it with that. I'm with you. I mean, and then that scene at his rehab center when he breaks down when she visits him, it's devastating. God, there's so many different clips in that movie that you could submit for his Oscar, you know, award campaign here that they show. He's so good. But y'all, so is she. I love Gaga <laughs> in this movie. I love Gaga in general, but I'm gonna declare yeah, you're a little monster. I'm gonna declare on this podcast, and I've said this before, you guys know this, I think she should have won the Oscar that year. It was it was a tough one. You know, we had Glenn Close and The Wife, 
it was Glenn V. Gaga for so much of it. And then Olivia Coleman came out on top. I mean, Melissa McCarthy was also amazing and can never forgive me. But um, oh, yeah, I really think a star making turn it was. And it would have been so amazing to see her win uh, the acting Oscar for this because, you know, you have to believe her journey just as much as you believe his. And you buy it. You buy them together. Mm-hmm. She's a star from start to finish. And the finish of her in that blue dress singing I'll Never Love Again. I mean, we said it before, but I am astonished every time. I cry. Her best acting is through performance, in my opinion, when she's singing. Mm-hmm. And she sells it. And it's so crazy that in that moment when we first hear Shallow, you believe that that's the first time that person has ever been on stage like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is this is Lady Gaga. This is not, I don't know, some unknown. We know her and the fact that she has, you know, millions of fans and sells out stadiums and arenas. But the fact that you believe that she's actually nervous to go up there. You also, I love when she sings, when she first sings, I'm off the deep end. And it looks like she surprises herself with the note that she hit. It's so good. <sighs> I love when she talks to her dad and this little accent kind of comes out. This, you know, mm. it's those moments too. She's she's great. I love how she plays the night the naivete of Allie in the beginning when she's in that parking lot scene and she's like, "I don't like to sing my own songs." I, I just think that she sounds so amazing and young and but and then the woman that she becomes by the end when she's like comforting him in the in the rehab facility at the piano. I mean, it's just so good. It's. Yeah. I mean, I think that people thought that perhaps the acting globe that Gaga won for American Horror Story was maybe classic Hollywood foreign press, like awarding a big star type moment. But I think this, she had her star is born moment. This was her star was like made. Like we knew that she was going to be someone like a share or somebody who was going to be mm-hmm. around for a long time after this movie. Oh, I love the share comparison. Oh, I do too. <laughs> and she is now, I mean, she is a movie star. Mm-hmm. House of Gucci made money too, and that came yeah. out in a really tough time. The campaign trail being the most legendary thing as mm-hmm. well mm-hmm. of the speech that she made over and over again about Bradley Cooper. Like, You know what's weird though, now that I think about it? I do think it's odd that he doesn't cheat more frequently across the movies. Across that the movies, that's yeah. not a theme. Mm-hmm. Because, I don't know, mm-hmm. I could I could see that happening for a character, especially as they lean into him being a more insecure man. So it makes sense, I think, for the the version of this character in the 76 version to do it. But the way that it comes about, I, I agree, makes little sense. <laughs> um, because we just don't have enough information. And just the way the scene is presented is very odd. Uh-huh. Yeah, it is. In the 54, we kind of get to know that character through him showing up at that, it's like a hotel bar, just a bar and the maitre d' or somebody's like helping him try and find Esther and they're like picking out the different women in the bar. Is that, am I remembering this correctly? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then he doesn't ever seem to have like a wandering eye again. It's true love. You know, it's love story. We're supposed to buy the, you know. A one man woman. Or one, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, right. I guess for how much we're supposed to believe they're in love, was anybody shocked that they didn't want to have like a family or kids together? Because I feel like that would be a thing especially in like the earlier versions of like becoming famous, finding your true love, making a family. I feel like that is very much an ideal and that never happens. No, you're right. And they make a point to get married in each version Mm -hmm. too. 
So, like, it's not like in the earlier versions where it would have been, you know, scandalous or something like that if that happened. Yeah. That is odd. In 54, when and she's um, t- talking about how, and, he, and he's overhearing it from the bed when he's, like, sleeping and everything. At the end, and you mean? Judy is... At the end, yeah, and Judy says, like, I'm going to quit. I'm going to leave it all behind. And that affiliate man is, like, I don't remember his role. It's always, like, that male figure that's, like, an advisory-type character. (laughs) And he's, like, you're at the height of everything right now. Like, this is the, you know, and so I think maybe it's because, you know, she's so so focused on what she's doing that it's just an afterthought. Yeah. I don't know. That's a good question, Nick, though. I I don't know. It is. But I do remember also in watching the 2018 version thinking that they could – like, that, that would be believable for the characters, which makes it mm-hmm. even more tragic. It's so sad. That's the saddest one. It's so sad. <laughs> it's tragic to a point where I wouldn't have been surprised if, like, they pan out and she's, like, pregnant singing on stage. And it's, like, <laughs> oh. the memory of Jackson Maine. Oh, my God. Oh, the the wow. melodrama. I don't think that's out of the question. It's like the Todd Haynes version <laughs> of a star <laughs> Lean into the melodrama. The other gay thing I want to mention, because it leads to another section we can talk about, is in this one, it is very clear from the beginning, we get this foreshadowing of there's a billboard with nooses over a rainbow flag. And this is the only version where he hangs himself. And it is kind of interesting to see in the first two, he swims out to sea and drowns. In the third one, he recklessly drives his car crashes or some form of accident and then in this one you just get a shot of the garage and we did get a listener question from the futurist about this he asked why do you think the last two remakes chose different ways for the male protagonist to end his life but then also what do you all think is the more poetic ending or do you think they all fit based on who the character is because i found the swimming out to sea a much more romantic old Hollywood sort of ending for his character. Totally agree. And mm-hmm. I do think in the 1976 one, him getting in this reckless car wreck, which I do think was purposeful. I know I read that they wanted to make it maybe seem ambiguous that this guy might not do that. Oh, really? But it's, I think, pretty clear to me that he's going off to end his life. Oh, the minute he hears one of her songs, he's like inspired to like he's keep playing it. Really, on the eight track. Yeah. But yeah, because yeah. he was on reckless vehicles throughout the film, and that was so macabre. So how she runs over to the corpse. I mean, that was <laughs> <laughs> the seventy sixth one is a little campy, maybe if you want to look at it that way. But I couldn't believe that. I could not believe. And then you know, after he's dead, <laughs> she hears someone like playing a tape of him and she's running through the house yelling his name until she realizes oh. oh, some guy can't do the tape. It was a little silly. <laughs> but sad. It was sad. It was goofy. And then ripping out the tape. Oh my god. Yeah, yeah. it is a I was funny. I was mad that she did that. I was like, wouldn't you want to wrecking that. his regret voice? It. Like, don't you want to keep this? <laughs> right. Yeah, apparently not. Well the the death in the seventy six version, that is also primarily because John Peters didn't want him to die by suicide. But yeah, he was he was very insecure about this character actually mm. ending his own life as opposed to it being potentially just accidental because of his reckless behavior. The thing about it interesting. To me it was always like he knew what he was doing. He was it was mm-hmm. a metaphor. But the thing that I don't like about that explanation is that with showing the crash, it's only his car. 
there's no other car. Yeah. And we don't actually oh, yeah. see it happen. Right. Like they leave it they leave it off screen. They just have to show He must have been doing donuts again. <laughs> yeah. And then it, um, it then it might have rolled, At 160 miles an hour. <laughs> <laughs> I think the 2018 one is very effective because in my opinion it is shocking and I was not expecting that to be his method. I, I obviously I knew that that he died because that's just the legacy of the films but I think that this idea that maybe he's like a cowboy and he went out like that and this might feel like really dark. I don't know if we want to cut this but I I'm su- I was surprised he didn't use a gun. But there was no Chekhov's yeah. gun in this film, so. Well, the noose. The noose. The noose there was Chekhov's the noose. Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> yeah. oh. Which I don't good. remember that. Well, so that's yeah, interesting. Yeah. Why is it with pride flags? <laughs> I noticed that too, though, Nick, that it was told, maybe because they were in like the gayborhood. Nitpick about 2018 for a second. Allie and her dad are New Yorkers. It is very clear to me that this is a New York family, mm-hmm. not an LA family. Why do they live in LA? Yeah, or like New Jersey. I know Jersey. it's convenient to shooting, <laughs> but like they live in New Jersey or on Long Island. Like this is not mm-hmm. this is not an LA girl and her dad. Totally agree. No. <laughs> Maybe there's a little Italy somewhere in the that la county that counts i don't know (laughs) it's interesting that the movie i mean it's it ends in a suicide i mean that's controversial but the way people remember these movies is that it's a tragic love story and i don't know i I guess i don't really think about it much as much as i should but that's it's very intense that he feels like he Mm -hmm. has to die for her to be free of him i guess it's that is poetic in a sense to answer your question nick so maybe they're all poetic I think in, in different ways, yeah. I think the 54 version for me stands out visually because we get these shots that are very, very 54, like very old Hollywood of his reflection in the the mm-hmm. glass and with the waves. So you, and you're I knew like, oh, someone was going to mention the reflection. I knew yep. someone would mention that, yes. <laughs> it's a jump scare as well, actually, when he's standing there in the, in the robe. The robe yeah. plays a pivotal role. Why do you think he role? says to her, like, why do you... Yeah. <laughs> so stupid <laughs> the, <Cut that. laughs> the, where he's like encouraging her and he's like i want you to i want you to sing and let's let's eat this and drink this it's like that to me is so heartbreaking that like she's like gonna be on this high of like he's back and he's normal and he mm-hmm. wants normalcy and then he goes and does that like that to me is just also absolutely devastating well dylan i felt the same way and then i was like oh no he's literally trying to encourage her to go live life I love when you sing. You should sing more around the house. Like, keep moving on. That's how I read that one specifically. Okay. But still, it is so upsetting. In the 2018 version, I always think it's sad when he gives the dog the steak. That kills me. Oh, my God. I was worried about the dog for a second, I must say. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I didn't know when I first saw the garage. I was like, okay, he's taking, is he going to turn the car on and then, like, Mm -hmm, you know, do do it by that? Or what, is he actually going to drive there and crash the car? I don't, I I was so, I was so scared. Even in rewatch, I was like, please don't let it happen. It's like the end of the Titanic. The dog crying at the door is just the most heartbreaking thing i mean that's that's your realization is that the dog knows something is happening and can't get in and wants to protect him and it's uh it just makes you break down before you hear that final song mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we haven't talked about sam elliott which i know that it's scorched earth in this in this pod after his disparaging comments <laughs> about cowboy movies what do you what do we think of him and the role that he purposely serves in this movie 
So taking out my feelings of him and his comments about my my dear Jane Campion. Yeah, I, I, I like this character and the inclusion of this character in the movie. Because normally the version of this character is like an agent or someone who works in the industry or it's like it's an exclusively professional relationship. And in the 54 version, the version of this character tells Norman that like I'm not your friend. I just took care of you because I had to. It was my job. But right. this version, 2018, gives that another layer of the family dynamic to it and that difficulty of like them being stepbrothers. And I don't know. I, I think he... He was a good fit for the role, honestly. And the scene mm-hmm. when he is driving away and the camera is like in the back of the car and you see him and he's crying, like tearing up as he's backing out. That gets me every time. Yeah. Oh, totally. Another good example of male vulnerability. I remember there was conversation that he was a front runner for a while for the Oscar that season. But I... That might have been early. Early, early, yeah. Because Mahershala Ali for Green Book was just like, oh, here we go, second Oscar for that movie. That's, that's so tough. It, it it is a tragic Oscars ceremony, which I'm sure we'll get into in a sec, or maybe we won't. But I, upon rewatch, found some of Sam Elliott's scenes to be a little silly to me, and they. <laughs> I'm going to come across as like so strange here, but they used the F word so many times. It was before every word in the scenes between Jackson and his brother. It was comic. It it was like, is he letting them kind of riff on the script here? Like, why are they cursing so much at each other? But um, he was good in it. And I agree with everything Sophia said ultimately. But the dialogue is silly. I agree. Mm -hmm. when i watched it on a plane to vegas with hunter earlier this year they did have to blank out all of those f-bombs and i forget what they did if they replaced it with like a dubbed word or if it was just like silence but i remember it sounded like a like a radio edit of like an eminem song it was yeah (laughs) (laughs) they just go back and forth and again the movie is so good in the beginning and you have that scene it just kind of like hits you it's like what is happening why are they doing this back and forth to each other like I think the relationship is clear in that that it's troubled and they have a lot of history but showing it in this way was just totally unnecessary this is my favorite version of that manager character though Mm -hmm. where it falters in certain versions but this making him family is just such a smart decision. It it adds another layer to the alcoholism and the addiction that he has to be there. And then that final moment we get with Sam Elliott where he says, it was you I idolized, not dad. And he puts that truck right in reverse and you see him tearing up. Oh my God, it just hits you so hard. And you finally feel all of that tension trying to release before the end of the movie. And maybe the dynamic between brothers, that is really difficult. But he was he was my favorite. Yeah, totally. Speaking of characters like that kind of on the side, is it time to talk about the awful Rez and his introduction to us? So awful. Ali, that was unbelievable. (laughs) Those are his first lines. The reason I know this is because whenever I listen to the soundtrack, I listen to the full one with the dialogue. (laughs) And that immediately comes after Always Remember Us This Way, which is my favorite song in the movie. So I have to be really quick and skip. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. So I don't have to hear it. I mean, he has such a bad haircut. And he sucks. And I do think he's also gay, though. 
So to, oh, add, to, sure. to add to the, how gay this movie is, he sucks. But he does fill in some of the blanks, I guess, that we were missing from Allie's POV in the second half of the film. Suddenly I'm realizing maybe he makes some of it up, but who knows? We should talk about their makeovers a little bit, I think, because there are some good things with the other ones where I was like, why is Barbara wearing a crocheted hat? Her crocheted top. I mean, her whole... From what I understand, though, a lot of those outfits were her own and that she had them flown in to set. (laughs) I love that we exclusively call the Barbara Streisand character Barbara. (laughs) (laughs) Well, she's not an Esther. No, she's not. And it's not believable that Esther would be a name that you would see in neon lights. In that scene in the movie, you want it to be Barbara. Yeah, and her hairstyle doesn't change at all either, I'm suddenly realizing. Because that's such a pivotal part about the Alley characters switch. Mm-hmm. But Barbara's curly hair, huge hair, is present the whole it time. It is iconic. It is iconic. Though. I love it. I it do, is amazing. I do love her curly hair. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Me too. Me too. They never switch it up, though. I think it's a smart statement of her character and that she hasn't changed for him and that she knew who she was beforehand and he helped her rise to fame and she's still that same person. But I don't know the, the orange hair and like hearing hair body face and seeing her on SNL in the 2018 version. It's just a little too much. Hair body face is a great song though. (laughs) It's on all my playlists, especially my pride playlists. I do find it to be an absolutely iconic song. Is the hair body face better than why did you do that? Why did you do that? Is it why did you do this to me? It's just why did you do that? I do love that one too. We should actually go song by song for 2018. We should. (laughs) It is a lot. The transition from Allie performing with Jackson to suddenly pop star Allie. And I think we are missing a little bit of her decision making and agency in that. Well, I remember some of the criticism at the time, which I didn't totally agree with. You know, is Bradley Cooper being critical of the career that Lady Gaga ended up having? Because some of like the songs that Allie has, right? Like Lady Gaga's a pop star. She's not the rock star from the beginning, this like stripped down version of herself. That's what makes the film feel so powerful, I think. But mm-hmm. effectively, like who Allie becomes or who they want her to become isn't that far off from what yes people probably told Lady Gaga in her career but also like she she's someone who like bleaches her hair and she's the opposite of the no makeup makeup look right Mm -hmm. I personally like don't think that like I don't think it's critical of her and her decisions like in her own career and part of the reason why I feel that way is because I'm sure she had right input into what she was bringing into those scenes in the same way that like Judy Garland probably brought that to her character with her experience. Lady Gaga knew what that was like. The nose detail that is so perfect in this movie. Mm-hmm. I love it so much. Um, that's something she actually heard from people earlier in her career and that kind of pressure to change. And we see that in the first two versions of the movie too with 37 and 54 with just these them changing their eyebrows and oh you should look more like this person or you need to look more like this person this feature needs to totally change which is a really you know a dark thing that women in the industry in particular experience yeah i mean gaga herself does have a new nose i mean it's in this movie but it's from the original nose that we met her with during 
disco stick in that era. But I think that you're right, Sophia. She she definitely had input. I have to believe it. And also Lady Gaga as an enigma, as this creature that's in mm-hmm. pop culture, she had input and has crafted her whole that's sort of the the, the story about her is that she mm-hmm. has created this image herself. Whereas yeah. the Alley character pop star crossover everything was she's like well they think they want me to do this and they want me to wear this and they want me to Mm -hmm. sing these songs so i think that there's a a strict difference there yeah that's completely true right the reason why she's so singular as a pop star is because she was the one creating that image for herself Mm -hmm. and that look and idea i remember the one more thing i want to say about her not song wise but our friend nick not nick burkrod our friend nick prainer said that the rumor was when this film was coming out that she wasn't going to be going by Lady Gaga for this movie, is that she was going to be credited as Stephanie Germanotta, which I think is kind of interesting that she wanted to shed, or that the the people thought that maybe she wanted to shed this character to be herself and then play a character, but I think she made the right decision by staying Lady mm-hmm. Gaga for the movie. I remember hearing that too, Dylan. Speaking of Gaga and the movie and introducing her in general as this, as Dylan said, a star made. But I love the beginning of this movie. You know, we have the first few scenes and then she's at her catering job or whatever that is. And she is told to take out the trash, then she does. And then we see her walking through the alley, singing Somewhere Over the Rainbow, and the title comes across. That is cinema. Ugh, it is such a great Mm. shot. So amazing. The title drop in the 2018 version is perfect. Mm -hmm. The font the way it's revealed, how she's singing, how she's framed in the shot, the connection to Judy Garland. Yeah, it's that frame that is mirroring the title card from the 54 version, but also in singing that prologue, I mean, unless you know it, I didn't know this beforehand, but the prologue to Over the Rainbow is what she's singing down the alley, and there are just so many odes to Judy Garland, and she does to Barbara as well, but I think it's apparent who she loves as Mm -hmm. inspiration to her music self, but also her acting self. Gosh, it's interesting because I also read that the blue dress that Allie wears at the end was apparently inspired by Grace Kelly, which I think is just a strange connection to the A Star is Born history in general, knowing that Grace beat Judy at the Mm -hmm. Oscars. You're talking about iconic shots like the, the title card one. My favorite one is also featured in the aforementioned trailer. Jackson and Allie are leaving the, it's like a an RV or a mm-hmm. tour bus. And you see the reflection on the one side. And then she's like looking up at him with the hat and everything. I, it's so beautiful. It is. I also love the very clearly Kubrick inspired shot of her in the bathroom with the checkered mm-hmm. floor. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, screaming. So now good. there's the the legacy around that the uh the scene where she's in the tub right. has left a weird taste in my mouth that allegedly bradley cooper improvised the line about her being ugly and yeah. all that stuff i don't know how i feel about that well they probably did a lot of takes and he switched it up at different ones is what i think but uh, I don't know. that's hard to, to hear. get a rise yeah. out of her i guess and i'm sure mm-hmm. it was if it was like yeah. multiple takes like a last straw like he knew it was coming and waiting for some eruption and then she's full Merkin in the top. I mean, she's full. <laughs> she bears her breasts for this film, much like she did in Lady Gaga's iconic documentary, Five Foot Two, now streaming on Netflix. But wait, there's something that I just thought of that we have not discussed. And it's, the I think, one of the only 
things that remains in all four movies, which is the back and forth exchange between Jackson or Norman mm -hmm. or John <laughs> wanting to get another look at his star. And I didn't realize that it was in all of them. And obviously when it was in the trailer for the 2018 and it became a meme, of course, instantly. And it still lives on sometimes as a meme, but it's such a good moment. I mean, I love it. Do you guys have a favorite of the four movies of the I just want to get another look at just um, exchange? I think it's 2018. I think it is because 54 is really sad. Oh, it's Because so it's sad. at the end. It's like, okay, I need to, I want to look at you one last time, which I think probably makes the most sense for how the line is used. But it's just so cute in 2018, even though, you know, people endlessly make fun of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Or 76. When is it in 76? I'm trying to remember. I wrote it down, but I, so much of that movie has escaped I don't my even, brain. Yeah. Except for the Schlitz cans in the bathtub. <laughs> is it when he drops her off at home when it's like six in the morning and she's going inside? Is that... Oh, so similar to the 2018 one. I want to say it might be similar to the 2018 one. I think one. so. It I think you're right. It doesn't land as well for some reason. She's just so confident and sure of herself. And well, mm -hmm. while Allie is as well, it just felt much, I and mean, also they had a romantic connection in 2018, so there was that that other layer to it. And then in the 37 one, it's mind if I take just one more look. Right. It's not in every version, but I think in the final three, they have it twice. They have it in the beginning after they meet. He says, I just wanted to take another look at you. And then at the very end, when he's looking at her for the final time, he says something to the effect of, oh, I'm just looking at you one more time. Just looking, babe, is what he says in the 76 version. So I think it's interesting that it's not in the first, I don't believe. But I think it does pack more of a punch when it's in the beginning and at the end, kind of bookending this relationship and experience that they've had together. But she doesn't know it in the end. He's he's being final about it, but she just thinks he's going away for the day. It's another normal day. He's not being cryptic. But we know as a viewer what's happening. Dramatic irony. Should we talk about the songs? Yeah, let's talk about the songs. So we had a couple of questions, and then I do think we actually just need to go through all of the music because it's mm -hmm. so good. So our first question has to do with song nominations. So do you think the best songs were the ones that were actually nominated? So 1954, the nominated song is The Man That Got Away. 76 is Evergreen, and 2018 is Shallow. Confidently, yes, for 1954, because it totally. stands alone. Yes, I agree there. But it's also in context. Yeah, I totally agree with 54. Evergreen, to me, is like a, such a beautiful song. I think because it was such a soft rock song, it, it really was probably why I got radio play at the time and became so popular. But um, I really like the song she sings at the end inside mm -hmm. of you or something like that or the inside i don't know if that's the right that's title, beautiful the finale song yeah it is beautiful i loved the woman in the moon oh another favorite of mine yeah really good nick i love that you love the 70s i know i'm like the woman in the moon and nick's like oh yes the woman in the moon yep <laughs> <laughs> that old chestnut <laughs> gonna have my bell bottoms on tomorrow and uh -huh. my cowboy hat. I dress every day. Three buttons down on your button down. Maybe four if you're feeling oh, risky. I have to share something dark when you're talking about the cowboy hat. Okay, in the 2018 version, when there's the very dramatic moment of him putting the hat down, 
Mm -hmm. right at the end like for one last time i did laugh this time because i was thinking about that moment in oppenheimer when he picks up the hat when it's (laughs) blowing away (laughs) no no when not einstein not einstein when oppenheimer is like they're building the town like they're ready to go and the hat and the pipe are sitting there and it looks like a superhero moment and he goes and picks it up that's all I could think of when I was watching this movie, <laughs> when they showed that. That's so funny. But yeah, so at 76, we're a little mixed, I think, on the songs. Hmm. This is my one where I say they got it wrong. And it's sad that the man that got away didn't win because I wouldn't have given the win to Evergreen. I would have, like Connor, you said, The Woman in the Moon. I really love that. And the finale song, which morphs genres which kind of shows her story but yeah they're just not oscar songs evergreen is the quintessential oscar song and that's why it won but i mean out of all the versions this is the most forgettable soundtrack to me i'm sorry barbara i love your voice and Mm -hmm. oh my god it's i mean you can't rank the three stars it's impossible no but her voice is incredible and it's sad to say that I don't love the music as much, but yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't have given Evergreen the win or the nom here. I believe this win was the first time a female songwriter won this category, the Oscars. I think I read that on Gold Derby. For this category. <laughs> That's interesting. For this category. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. For some reason the nineteen mm-hmm. the nineteen seventy six yeah. A Star is Born reminded me of the twenty twenty three Amazon Prime series. Daisy Jones and the Six. <laughs> yes, I wrote that down. You did? I thought the same thing. Yes. How crazy Thank is that? Thank you for bringing this up. Yes, Evergreen. Please. Honeycomb. I don't know. There's like mm-hmm. something. <laughs> so my thing with Daisy Jones and the Six and why I struggled to finish it, even though I loved the costumes in the time period, but I just didn't believe that they actually, I don't know. Like I didn't believe in the love story and I felt that the people in the show, I didn't believe that they actually loved the music. Like it's a very inferior, almost famous to me. Totally agree. Like I always compare everything I think with music from that time to that. Yes. Daisy Jones and the Six <laughs> is a star is born 1976. So funny that you thought of it too though. And the girl Daisy is played by Elvis's granddaughter. What's her name? Um Zola. From Zola. From and Zola. Elvis. Oh, from Zola. <laughs> Dylan knowing that tidbit is so funny. On her though, for a second, another connection. They considered Elvis mm-hmm. for the 76 version in the Chris Christopherson role. So Elvis in 76. I'm to, yeah, I'm trying to think who Elvis was in 76. Too washed up. It would have been too okay. real, I think. Like yeah. bloated Elvis? Yeah. Not a lordy Elvis. Was he doing his Vegas residency? <laughs> Probably. Yeah. Okay. The colonel had a hand in that, I'm sure. I so. if, I, if I'm to believe Elvis <laughs> to be the text of the colonel's you know, life story, then I believe that for sure. For sure. For sure. Elvis the film, that is. Yeah, the story goes that he wanted Elvis as top billing and Streisand wouldn't give it to him and didn't happen. Of course. Honestly, whenever I see the name, the colonel, I just think of Tom Hanks. It's (laughs) it's a problem. Yeah. (laughs) Um, We we never discussed 2018's song, Shallow. Well, it's time. It's It's time. time. (laughs) (laughs) So with this one, I do think the right song won. Just because this is like, this is the song from the movie. This is the moment from the movie. But I would have nominated multiple. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Diane Warren, you're fine. Let's get rid of this nomination. 
The Place Where Lost Things Go, Goodbye. All these nominations here against it. I just would have nominated multiple songs from the movie and namely Always Remember Us This Way, which is so beautiful and such a showcase of Gaga's vocal talent. Mm -hmm. It tells a story better than Mm -hmm. Shallow does. Yeah. I still don't even know what We're Far From the Shallow Now even means. Um, in the same way, I don't know what rolling in the deep means, <laughs> but always remember us this way, like the man that got away captures, like, I think the theme of the movie in general. And so I think that it just would have been a smarter, I mean, I think it's just a better song, but love that song. It should have been nominated at least. And let me plead for, is that all right? Which plays <laughs> over the end love. credits. Is that all right? <laughs> it is so good i will die on the hill that gaga has never sounded better than she does on that song her voice just soars to the heavens on is that all right and it's it's a great end credit song which i think was cut from the movie is that true it was supposed to be at like a wedding sequence it's also in one of the teasers for the movie because i remember when that specific trailer came out thinking what is the song she sounds so good in it the wedding song in the movie is I don't know what love is. Oh, okay. Yes, you're but right. On the soundtrack, is that all right? Comes right after that. Okay. So I think your your um your reasoning makes sense. It sounds like it could be a wedding song. You know, it's like it does. Yeah. It does. As a callback to the bodyguard, "I'll Never Love Again" is like the modern "And I Will Always Love You" song mm. to me. Like it is so good. It is such a perfect ending to the movie. I think it also could have been nominated. What's great about that song is. That in the context of the film, obviously, you're seeing Allie sing about the love of her life has died, but it works as an amazing song anyway, because it could just be about a breakup. I mean, I think it's just so well written and well done. And yeah, you could make a case for nominating that one, too. (laughs) Yeah. And I always still like when I rewatched the 54 version, I was so surprised that Judy Garland didn't get a big final number like I know. that. It just ends with, and I'm Mrs. Norman Maine. <laughs> and there isn't a song. And I just always mm-hmm. want her to have another one, selfishly. She should. I know. I remember thinking yeah. that too. I think it's a great final pop ballad for the Lady Gaga character. I mean, she just went through Joanne. That was her last album before, mm-hmm. which I think I believe about this character, like starting out who she is, this country girl, no makeup. It it fits what she was doing with Joanne really well. But I would love yeah. to have seen Maybe It's Time or I'll Never Love Again mm-hmm. potentially get nominated. I think oh, we could have maybe filled. Maybe It's Time does something to me. Mm-hmm. Maybe it is time to let the old ways die. Mm. <laughs> that was also in the trailer, wasn't it? Or in one of them? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was in the first trailer. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> they like show the Glastonbury crowd and then they show Bradley Cooper on stage singing. Maybe yes. it's time. Yeah. They rolled it out right, y'all. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> yeah. We can't forget that Bradley sings in this and he's good. I He's so good. Yeah. love his songs. When he starts with Black Eyes, I wanted the full Such cut. Such a surprise. And I'm like, we're only getting 30 seconds. That was one of the first things I listened to on the album. Not only in listening through it, but I love that opening. I love the rock that he's giving us. I also love Alibi. I don't know. It, it fits his character really well in his voice. Mm-hmm. And you believe that he's the star. It's angelic, yeah. As well. I do love Blavion Rose, and I think that it is just... 
Oh, yeah. She's such a chameleon. The way that she's able to capture this French... Is it Edith Piaf? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, come on. Marion Cotillard is shaking. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't the story go that Bradley saw Gaga perform it in an intimate setting and then he wanted yeah. her to be the star of the movie? Is that when he got the idea? Yes. Wow. How meta. Who else was up for it for this well, 2018? Well... There's a version that was going to be directed by Clint Eastwood, starring Beyonce. We did have a listener question by Rob Montoya about this, about a lot of big-name directors such as Scorsese, Spielberg, Eastwood, and actors Elvis, Beyonce, DiCaprio, and Fox were tossed around for both the 76 and 2018 versions. DiCaprio's crazy, sorry. You can finish your question. I just had a freak out for a second. I didn't know that. Is there a pairing you would have preferred or are you curious about for both versions? Really, my only thought when I thought about this question was Beyonce. But I don't know if that works. We kind of get that arc in Dreamgirls with Dina Jones. She She's not a strong actor. I, I, I mean, I love Beyonce and I think she knows that she's not a strong actress. So that's why she hasn't been in many films lately, y'all. I don't think she could do it. But Beyonce and Gaga are the two stars of the moment that I think you would immediately think Mm -hmm. for that role. I mean, in terms of the other pop stars of of now, you know, we know Taylor Swift can't act. Time will tell with Ariana Grande and Wicked. My hopes aren't that high, to be honest with you. I hope she's great, but I I don't, my hopes aren't that high. So I think Gaga was just the only choice. Unless they went with a non-musical route. I'm wondering if they would have gone a non-musical route, you know, since there's names like DiCaprio or... Jamie Foxx does say he was in Dreamgirls too, but... Oh, yeah. And Ray. Oh, yeah. And Ray. Yes. Right. Leo singing, I don't know. I think they would move it to a different industry like they have previously. But the mm-hmm. problem with that is that musicals are just more fun. And it's, mm-hmm. it's a tangible way to see someone's star power. Because one of my things with the 1937 version that I have trouble with is that we don't really see her acting. Just that one bit Just part that, that she had yeah. and everyone thought she stole the show. Yeah, We don't see enough of that. Whereas in these musical versions, we see it pretty consistently. So it's more believable, I think, in their, their star turns and, and why the Norman Maine character is drawn to them. You know, you saying about the industry switch made me realize that Boogie Nights isn't a Star is Born (gasps) type film, Sophia. We had the best time seeing Boogie Nights. (laughs) We really did. And Mark Wahlberg's character is, you know, he's he's Vicky Lester. (laughs) Dirk Diggler is Vicky Lester. (laughs) Big, bright, shining Star is Born. Well, there was a scene in, in the 1937 when they go through the kitchen and they go to her, she's working like a service industry job. And it mm-hmm. reminded me of the scene in Boogie Nights when they go back and find him in the kitchen. Oh my God. Oh wow. So, You're onto something. I actually wrote that. I wrote that in my notes, actually. I'm, I'm a, oh I'm a cinephile. PTA is a Stars Born fan. <laughs> but you could go into like country music or if, if you wanted to find a star there, but I don't know. I don't even what know who if? you'd go with. Gwyneth. Country yeah. Strong. I mean, we have, we have that strong. version. Leighton Meester and um, Gwyneth. <laughs> That's a great movie, by the yeah, way. Yeah, I mean, I don't think she's, she's, that an she, industry shift she's would the translate name. well. Yeah. <laughs> I'm losing my mind. She I have is. to mute myself. I'm sorry. <laughs> the only other industry that I think hasn't been touched is the aforementioned Broadway one, which... Nick, I remembered something in the back of my mind earlier. There was a planned adaptation of the 1954 one with the Judy Garland canon. 
but it was going to be adapted by Bill Condon, who did, I think he did the Dreamgirls movie. Uh Yeah. And it just never ended up happening. But I don't necessarily know if we need that on stage, to be honest with you. I think that it should be a new original musical with, Mm. and and if you're going to do it on Broadway, make it about Broadway. I think Mm -hmm. we don't have the extremes of fame on Broadway anymore. But I think that it would be, it would just make sense to make it be a theater story instead. That kind of makes me think of, I saw MJ yesterday, and that's really what the story deals with is his struggle with fame and the rise to fame and all of the mental struggle he was dealing with, with everybody coming at him from every side. So I think that is really what the story has to be on Broadway. It has to be dramatic, but also fun. But this is where my question is going to come in for drama and drama wild is we mentioned funny girl before and gaga stepping into streisand's shoes with this version but it's also funny that in this adaptation of funny girl whatever you want to call it on broadway gaga was the first choice before beanie or leah so what do you think about that because i mean the whole the oscars part of it the broadway part of it i think that there's definitely a dynamic there oh totally and i think rosie o'donnell was also going to be attached to that bunny girl oh yeah it was like rosie Um, as the mother and gaga was going to be fanny i would have loved that i still would love that you know if leah michelle can play fanny in her mid-30s then gaga can as well and i don't know if she'd do it though i think it's too similar to a star is born i don't know and also there's problems with the funny girl book so in that it's not a great book um (laughs) (laughs) but yeah i think she would have done it so well though had had it gone to broadway for sure. Well, I was just thinking, speaking of age, Gaga was 32 when she did A Star is Born, and so was Judy. But Judy looked much older, to be honest with you. The years were not kind to Ms. Garland, but they were both 32. She went through a lot, you know. Well, it's especially noticeable because he has such a weather-worn face <laughs> in that movie. Yeah. And he has the, the best, the like, and... best smile lines. He has that great oh, nose. He's it, y'all. <laughs> He's it. <laughs> I can't imagine Leo in that role, though. Also because Leo's probably the most popular male movie star still right i mean him between leo and yeah. tom cruise yeah i can't think of anybody else that's a movie star like that you know bradley as well but um it yeah. really is leo i mean he's he is the he's the one right now of that generation we have some questions so we have in every movie a scene where norman embarrasses her when she wins her award which scene do you think is the worst for me it's between 54 and 2018 mm-hmm. 2018 i mean he pisses himself on stage. That's like the worst that you could do. But even before that, he stumbles onto the stage and the lights aren't on him, but he's like mumbling to her. And you have to imagine that people are watching him while she's trying to give her acceptance speech. And that is the most cringe ever. But also in the 54 version is when there's like some flailing that happens and he ends up smacking her in the face and I think that is maybe more tragic especially when you're on the stage giving the most important speech of your life this happens and the cameras are on you it's just heart-wrenching to watch terrible Mm -hmm. I'm with you 54 that's it's bad you have to wonder how much of that then became public like you know what I mean like in in the 50s were, were those clips being used in the media news stream in the way that in 2018 people probably had their phones out or became viral or were watching around Mm -hmm. the I don't know, but I agree. The violence aspect, I think, is what upsets me. I think 2018 is like the most, that's the most embarrassing. But 54, remember that they make a point that the one, his, I think his name's Oliver, 
plants things in the press. It's very Luann and Ramona oh, Singer. Right. Very uh, Radar Online. <laughs> radar Online, LVP, yeah. Yeah. So I, I wonder like if that would have been picked up ahead of Hopper type. But still, yeah. yeah, the violence is the worst part. Where is the Oscar crisis team? I know they put that in place after I know. an event a few after years this... ago. But that thing yeah. that happened that we that everyone talked about for a long time. <laughs> oh man! Like who's letting this man on stage? I also think Fifty Four is worse because winning an Oscar is a bigger deal than winning a Grammy. Totally. Also, Best New Artist. Okay, who cares? How great, Ali. That it's Halsey too. I mean, Hair Body Face didn't get Song of the Year. <laughs> it should have. That's my other gay thing should've. from the movie is anytime I see her name, I read Ally. Not Allie. <laughs> Me too, Nick. Well, especially that rainbow billboard. The billboard. Which that is there's a billboard in all of them, right? Canva tragedy mm-hmm. right there that whatever, whoever made that. <laughs> Halsey also makes an appearance mm-hmm. as the presenter of that category. And I think there were celebrity cameos in a few of the other ones, right? Or at least in 76, maybe not. Mm-hmm. It's interesting too how the in the 37 version they bring up real people in the industry mm-hmm. at the time. But I also really did love in the 54 version when they're reading the nominees for the movies that or for mm-hmm. the women she's not nominated against. They're so good. Oh, you did? Oh my gosh, please read Wait them. Wait here. Okay, yeah. So the best actress nominees are, and they only had four. I was like, wait, there's not five? They were Jane Brandon for Those Who Seek, Vicky Lester for A World for Two, Alice Tenney for The Great Chance, and Shirley Vander for Don't Cry My Love. These are all such <laughs> 50s movie names. They happen. So perfect. You know, Shirley, mm. this was like her Goodwill Oscar. That Everyone thought she was going to win, but <laughs> Mickey was the star. Wait, actually, it's interesting considering like how meta some of these are. Like, oh, Janet already had an Oscar and then her character, you know, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But um, Allie being nominated for Best New Artist is interesting because Gaga is tied to something sort of infamous that happened with the Grammys, she wasn't eligible to be nominated for it. So after that year, they actually changed the eligibility requirements for that category. So kind of interesting. Yeah. The other aspect from 37 that I found really cool was in the beginning when she's walking the walk of fame at the Chinese theater, they show all these Mm -hmm. handprints and footprints and they show Harold Lloyd and you can't really see unless you know what the square looks like, but her actual square is to the left of his. It's just out of frame. So the Janet Gaynor handprints are like right there next to his. That's so cool. I love, oh, I love that. that. And we had some Twitter questions. So Chels asked, Cary Grant was the first choice for the 1954 version, but turned it down because it was too close to home. Would you prefer to see him in the role? It would have changed the movie completely. I agree. I Cary it. Grant yeah. and everything. Yeah, for sure. I wonder if Cary knew Judy. I'm sure they crossed paths at some point, but I don't remember what studio he was with mostly because she was MGM up till this wonder well this story is not pleasant Uh oh that he thought it was the role of a lifetime and was interested was more interested in traveling with his wife and refused the role he was also concerned about garland's reputation for unreliability oh that's really tough yeah he would have been good though Mm -hmm. he's not wrong because she was she did struggle yeah i think i read 
that she was at the beginning of production she showed up she was on her best behavior she was rocking and then as it wore on she fell into old habits like back on the the pills and drinking before every scene I read this I don't know if it's true that she had a flask with her at all times during the filming to calm her nerves because she was really nervous getting back into acting after being away from it for a few years Another question we got was from Matthew Anderson. He asked, why do you think Bradley Cooper's take on A Star is Born didn't make it into the best director or editing races? So for director that year, Alfonso Cuaron won for Roma, and then the other nominees were Spike Lee for Black Klansman, Pavel Pawlikowski for Cold War, Yorgos Lanthimos for The Favorite, and Adam McKay for Vice. Hmm. Again, we mentioned this earlier, I think easily swapped cooper for mckay and that's a really strong lineup i agree not my favorite spike lee film and i could have done without him as well in that lineup but i wonder y'all are obviously oscar aficionados in in the industry is there a sort of a bias against director stars and they think especially this was bradley cooper's not directing debut, right? But it his... was, yeah. This was oh, his narrative okay. feature debut, yeah. Do you think there was sort of like a bias of like, let's not give this kid everything all at once here. Let's like let him kind of earn his place among these... Because le- there's so many legends that he would have been nominated against. Yeah. I mean, I think that's part of it. I think it's it's changed over time because... You know, Robert Redford, he won Best Director in 1980 for his directorial debut, Ordinary People. Beautiful man, actor turned director. You know, it happened. It happened then. Kevin Costner winning for Dances with Wolves. Warren Beatty winning for Reds. Like, we have these examples, but they don't really happen anymore. It kind of seems like something of the past, and now they're much more resistant. And the thing about the directing branch of the Academy is they're so... It's a club especially now it's become like much more international. Like this branch strays from what everybody else does like throughout the rest of the season. So this season, Bradley Cooper, he was nominated at DGA. He was nominated at the golden globes. It made sense for him to get a nomination. And then they went with a veteran who made cold war, a black and white Polish film, which I love deeply. He would not be the person I would take out of the lineup, but you have to kind of earn your stripes now. I think to get recognized here but very interesting um, bradley definitely should have made it in especially with this group kick out adam mckay goodbye he will this year he'll be nominated this year this year is really tight though again it's really tight fun fact cold war is being turned into a musical speaking of movies turned into musicals and it's currently playing um in london actually sophia you should go (gasps) see it (laughs) oh my god It's, it's at the almeida where um or almeida where Paul Meskel's Streetcar Named Desire. Streetcar. Yeah. It's a very small theater, but if you're free while you're there, I can't believe I didn't mention this. Interesting. Yeah, Bradley should have made it in. Now, I did find the editing to be very good. I mean, the winner is like one of the most maligned winners in editing history, Bohemian Rhapsody that year. But I don't understand why this, this feels like an obvious place that A Star is Born could have had another nomination. Totally. Plus editing a movie with musical numbers too. The montages, the sequences were all so brilliantly done. It doesn't, I mean, Vice had the strange, strange editing. I mean, it's just. Ugh, they always go for Hank Corwin editing. It's terrible. <laughs> I can't 
deal with it. The same thing happened with Don't Look Up. His style is just so aggressive and over the top. It's too much. There are certain sequences that add deeper layers because of the edits. And that is not what we got in Bohemian Rhapsody. But there's a moment where Jackson is about to sing on stage and he immediately cuts to Allie at a dance practice. And it just gives this notion that he's going through the motions. He's drinking. He's performing, but he's not really there. He wants to be with Allie and she's the one working really hard practicing. So I love those little things that add so much. I mentioned earlier about the cut during the final song, but something like that, that is a much stronger use of editing that really kind of throws you off guard, but it Mm -hmm. still has that same effect on you. Oh, that cut. That should have had it win Best Picture. That single cut alone should have got a nomination. <laughs> I know. And then it cutting back to her and she's got the single tear. I mean, oh, yeah. it's great. And there's another one where it, someone says, give it up for Jackson. And there's a cut to the dog sitting outside the garage. And it's just like oh, what he's doing my God. with the editing alone is so powerful. I mean, 2018 Oscars. A Star is Born should have won Best Picture. Best director, best actor, best actress. And I mean, when we look at this again, I mean, best actor was Rami Malik. Come on. That's he's not a best actor uh, at, at all ever. That was crazy. So I think this is the most painful loss in Oscar history for me personally. I remember I had an Oscar party this year and just being so miserable by this point mm. in the night because I knew that it was coming. Like, every single anonymous ballot said, Rami Malek, Rami Malek, and we knew it was happening. But it just still felt so terrible. I mean, he was playing an SNL caricature of Freddie Mercury in a movie where Freddie Mercury says, I got it, AIDS. That's a literal line of dialogue in the movie. Like, what are we doing here? (laughs) Academy? I know. And I just feel like what Bradley Cooper does in this movie is so beyond what anything Rami Malek has ever done in his career, that like when I think about this Oscar loss in particular, I can't even think of the rage that I would have if I were Bradley Cooper or just like his mom. Like, how does Gloria feel about this? Gloria Campaigna? That her son was robbed. It's the teeth for me. I know, Sophia, I feel the pain for you. It's it's because it's it's it just doesn't make any sense on paper, I suppose. But And it was totally between them, too. Like, there was yeah. no way that, like, Christian Bale was going to win it. I don't, I don't think. Or, um... No. Who else Vigo was up there? Is Vigo Mortensen nominated? for Green Book? Especially after what he said on set. Oi. Um, actor in a leading role is probably the most cursed category. If I had to really boil it down, I mean, Brendan Fraser, Rami Malek... I chose not to take in the darkest hour at all, and I probably won't ever, but I... <laughs> it will be your darkest just... hour when you do. <laughs> it's really bad. I watched it over it was on my Netflix queue and I was like, oh, I just have to do it. But, but weirdly, this category excites me so much for this year's Oscars. It's wild. Like, I really think it's a tight race this year. I mean, between Leo, Bradley, Coleman. Honor wants um, Andrew Scott. I want Andrew Scott, which I don't think is going to happen, but so good. And there's one more that I was like, oh, he'll probably get in. I forget. But yeah, Bradley. But I 
think I'm going to say it now. I think he's going to win this year. Love it. I think I'm on that train too. For actor. Yeah. Makeup and hairstyling. I mean, he was spectacular. Can't wait to see it. I'm so curious what you'll think, Dylan. Hopefully in theaters. For the record, I do want to go back on what I said. I don't think Bradley deserved director for A Star Is Born, and I'm happy with Alfonso winning for Roma, but he still should have been nominated. I don't want people to think I'm a total hack. I am partially, but anyway. Do you guys think Gaga had any chance at all for winning actress? (laughs) So funny you say that. We got a good question from Hunter Taylor. Would Gaga have won the Oscar if they stayed in the comedy musical category at the Globes? What about if she beat Glenn at the Globes? So one is if she stayed in drama and beat Glenn Close. And the other is if they switched the movie to comedy musical from drama because it ran in drama. From what I've learned from y'all, no. Because Olivia was comedy and Glenn Close was drama, Mm -hmm. they're giving it to the veteran. And Gaga had one as well, as I mentioned earlier. If Gaga did beat Olivia Coleman at the Globes. Glenn would have won the Oscar. I just don't see that happening at the Globes. That's the problem. I kind of do. Going back to Glenn for a second, she's won a Globe for TV. She hadn't won for a movie before. So I think in that way, again, they give it to the veteran who hasn't won for film. I guess. And then I don't see a world where they give Gaga the globe over Coleman because I think then Glenn Close would have had a better chance of winning than Gaga. Interesting. I agree. I can see Lady Gaga beating Olivia Coleman at the Globes. That's a very Globes thing to happen. But I still don't think it would have made an impact at the Oscars. It was such a gag on Olivia Coleman won. Oh my God. What a great moment in her mm-hmm. speech. Ugh, that was so iconic. I still would have voted for Gaga. Anyway, um, what other <laughs> questions do we have? <laughs> well, so Ryan asked us, based on the stars we have working in Hollywood today, who would you want to see in a fifth version of the story in, let's say, 25 years, who would direct the film? Well, per my rule of, of a version ha- having to happen every 20 years, it would be too soon. With the way that fame is these days, you never know who will step into the spotlight and be somebody who is a star in the next decade or so, let alone a triple, quadruple threat. So, But I think it's interesting to consider like what industry it would be in. I do really like the Boogie Nights comparison. <laughs> Like, if they made a porn version of A Star is Born. Like and is that, they OnlyFans? Is picked... that where we are now? <laughs> right. Or TikTok. Like, TikTok. What is, what is it? Addison what is Ray. it in 25 years? In terms of directors, though, I think that I would like another actor turned director to do it because they understand the fame in a different way. It makes it stronger emotionally. I would love to see it tackle race dynamics. I think that would be something that's interesting, too, whether it's a mixed race couple or or they're both a different race than just being Caucasian. I think that that adds a whole other layer to fame and the way that people view celebrities. And I mean, that's, I think a Beyonce type figure would be interesting. Mariah did do Glitter in 2001. She could have done the 90s one. She could have. Mm-hmm. She could have. That I actually think. But yeah, Dylan, I like that. I agree with both of you for sure. I'm excited to see it, whatever it is in, you know, 15 years at this point, probably. Yeah. Well, this goes into one of my wrap-up questions, which is, do we need another one? To be fair, I was surprised that there weren't more. You know, for as classic as the story is, and I like it's such a it's a it's an easy way in to look at fame and an industry like Hollywood music, etc. But sure, it, I think it's it's a concept that will always be as an audience something that we're being invited into, and I think that's appealing for people who want to to look at celebrity and 
what that means and what that can do to a person. So yes. Yeah, I think down the line, this also plays with the idea that Cucor's earlier film, What Price Hollywood, kind of had in forming mm-hmm. the story and how it changed. And then he took it back and did the second rendition of his own story in a way. So I think we will always get this in the future. It's hard now because where Jackson would be is someone who would be in their 20s, if we're looking 20 plus years ahead. And fame and celebrity changes so much in that decade when you're in your 20s, say, especially for newer stars now, especially for stars now that are becoming more famous younger. So it is really hard to say who would be a mentor figure in 20 years, let alone 10 years. Jacob Alordi. <laughs> Jacob Tremblay. <Stop>. No. <laughs> I'm thinking of like Judy was a child star and I'm thinking of other child stars. <laughs> I think when a story is so good that it demands to be told time and time again, it will be. Like I think about like how many versions of Peter Pan we have or... Or, Mm -hmm. you know, Alice in Wonderland. This is one of those, uh, Romeo and Juliet. This is another one of those things that it's, it's part of our, the fabric of storytelling at this point. So I definitely think that when the right idea comes along, it'll happen. And this is one of the biggest questions of our episode, which is the definitive version and why? And can we all agree on our favorite version? We can't agree. We know that, (laughs) I don't think. Mm Mm-hmm hard though because this conversation has made me realize how much i love the 2018 one i know (laughs) i think in terms of setting out to tell the story that they're telling you know the rising star and then the falling one i think they really showcase that rising star in such a great way when it's judy garland and i think she's the definitive a star but she'll always be tied to it the man that got away being one of her signature torch songs and the the meta aspect of it i think it's and also just being a really well-made film 1954 for me what do you guys think i know nick doesn't agree but (laughs) i'm not against the idea though because i think it was very influential and i think what judy did for esther vicky was so important and Not until we got the 2018 version did that change at all. So I think I would agree in saying 54. I mean, we can all agree that it's not 76, but there's still something (laughs) to awarding it to that first version that kind of started it all. But I think in terms of favorite, I would absolutely go with 2018. Me too. You know, when there is the fifth one, though... And some some upstart podcasters or whatever the format is of discussion in 15 years is, they're going to look back on 2018 and think, God, they got everything right. The other ones might not have gotten. They weren't, mm-hmm. weren't didn't know they needed to get right yet. I think that um, 2018 is the definitive one, but 54 is my favorite one. Gagged. So I'm going to say 54 is the definitive one, just because of we've had more time with it. Oh, sorry. That's what I meant. Oh. I'm so sorry. Oh. That is the one. That is one. Because I was agreeing with you guys. Yeah, I was yeah, agreeing yeah. with you all. 54 okay, I'm so is sorry. definitive. No, you're good. You're good. Jane. Jane. Got that. You're Valerie Cherish tonight. I am. I am. I mean, time will tell, I guess, with 2018. But I just, I love Judy's performance. And when I think of A Star is Born, well, that's kind of a lie, actually. When I think of A Star is Born now, I do think of 2018 just because of the effect that it Mm -hmm. had on me when it came out and how rewatchable it is, the music. So 2018, 
I mean, after this talk, I think I do have to say that's my favorite. But I think 1954 is the best. How fun. <laughs> it, it's crazy. I feel like I've convinced myself that it's like a masterpiece after this talk. And you guys have convinced me too. <laughs> and our final question. If you could give each version one Oscar, what would it be? So who wants to start for 1937? I'll start and I will give it best picture slash I think it was called Outstanding Production back then. Because I think it really kicked off this, what it didn't know was going to be a movie that would be remade and remade and remade. I think it did a good job at telling the story. I'll go next. I am very convinced and moved by Connor's pleading for the granny. And I would give Best Supporting Actress to Mae Robson. I love that. It stuck with me. To who? The grandmother role. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so good. That's funny. Did y'all like her as much as we did? Yeah, she's the best. Okay. Yeah. I am surprised that they don't have one of those characters in any other version. That really did stick out mm-hmm. to me. I think my Oscar is going to go to Original Story. I think it created such a lasting framework that again we've spent three hours discussing and we'll continue on in so many other versions so it really was the starting place whether that's you know with Qcore or not but I will award that here I really love the supporting actress pick that's so inspired I wish I was gonna do something that creative but I'm actually I know she wasn't highly praised from the entire group I'm gonna give best actress to Janet Gaynor Because I do think of what I said earlier, I think about that believable transformation. She's already won an Oscar before, but she conveys this wide-eyed, spirited, I don't know, interest in Hollywood. And she's very believable in that um, transformation. So I would give her Best Actress, but she would not be my winner from the year. That would be Barbara Stanwyck for Stella Dallas. And then Connor, what about the 1954 version? Ooh, it's going to Judy Garland for me. Hands down, Judy. Judy best actress Judy. that is yeah. <laughs> yeah easy easy one of the best performances of all time musical dramatic the scene we forgot to mention the scene in the dressing room oh my when, god when she's in the like crazy makeup the yes. street urchin thing oh mm-hmm. fantastic Ugh, and she's like blaming herself for some of it but she's like why can't he change why is he like this oh, maybe maybe love isn't enough painful. oh it's so sad she's great okay what about 1976? Now, this one is hard for me. I don't know. <laughs> I I really wish... I You know, I usually have like a really strong opinion about something. Uh-huh. But with this movie, I didn't walk away from it feeling like anything was truly Oscar-worthy. Like, off the top of my head. Like, sure, a case could be made for things. So I'm curious about what you guys think. I'm going to go with Evergreen if I had to pick something. Because... It is one of those songs when people think, oh, what's like some of the most iconic songs from Best Original Song Oscar wins? People think they cite Evergreen. So I think it's yeah. to the test of time. That'll be mine too. It's not my favorite song in the movie, but the other songs aren't memorable enough for me to make a case for why another should win necessarily when this one was just so popular. Mm-hmm. I'm going to give mine to Cinematography. I think in how it captured the 70s, I love their moments when... They're like lots of light bulbs flashing, you know, from the cameras. And I think the way they capture the light and the characters really showed me what celebrity was like to them. And this was actually a category that they were nominated for. So 
I'm going to give it to cinematography. This was not an accidental tourist for me. Okay, on this point quickly, Robert Surtees, this cinematographer, if you ever want to be shocked by anything, go look at any cinematographer's IMDb. This guy also shot Ben-Hur, The Graduate, The Last Picture Show. That's great. It's kind of like how, in terms of like shooting good movies and shooting bad movies... Um, Robert Ellswit, the DP for There Will Be Blood, shot Gigli. It happens. Wow. You kids are full of knowledge. I think Evergreen is a great song, and it being one of Barbara's wins, and Dylan, you said it being a history-making moment. I love that. I'll do a best original song. Love theme. Evergreen love theme, as I think it was actually called. Worth noting that up against it this season was the iconic theme from Rocky, which has also stood the test of time. So I did go and listen to all the other songs nominated in each year against these nominees. And that was a standout, as well as a song from this horror movie called The Omen, which was absolutely horrifying. Oh, my God. Yeah, I was going to ask you, how did you feel about Ave Satani? I skipped through the second half of it. It got so scary. (laughs) I love that it was nominated. It probably would have been my pick. I think I think that there's been other instances of horror movie songs being nominated. It's like it's so rare though that horror gets anywhere, so it's just like when it does. And the Omen won score. Wow. Um something interesting to note about in 1954, the songs is there's one song that's fully whistled through. <laughs> oh, that was nominated. <laughs> the High and the Mighty, yeah. <laughs> it was kind of beautiful. <laughs> You and Bennett need to have uh, a song discussion, Dylan. I know, I guess so. How did you feel about Three Coins in the Fountain? The only thing that was nice about it was it was Sinatra singing. Mm, um, that helps. But other than that, it was not even like a good Sinatra song. If I had to pick a, a different one, though, I, I did like Count Your Blessings and Southern Sheep, which is from White Christmas. But the better White Christmas song would have been Sisters, which is strange that um, it wasn't nominated. Yeah. The, that is the one. Mm-hmm. Okay, final question, 2018. Which Oscar are you giving it, Connor? I am going with Best Original Song for Shallow. It is legendary, iconic, has lasted the test of time, really made a a moment for itself in the culture that year, and I think we'll we'll never forget it. After today's conversation, Best Picture. It's the best of that crop, too. Picture is so close for me. I really loved the favorite i probably would have given that my actual vote in the year just talking about the movie though i kind of want to give it a picture because i do love so many parts of this movie it kind of is the movie of the year mm-hmm. yeah but we talked about editing and i think we, we did. nick you you really made a case for why it was great i think it's really strong but can we like create a category for soundtrack and just award everything I love that I love idea. That. I like it. There are so many songs it. that we love. I mean, I, I do love Shallow. I think my Oscar is for Shallow, I will say, if we're not giving a picture. But the fact that there are so many to choose from is also really telling. We all know what my answer is. Bradley <laughs> Cooper, actor. He absolutely deserved this Oscar out of everyone in the field, including people who are not nominated. It's one of my favorite performances that... I just I was so happy when I saw him in this because I just felt so vindicated that I had been singing this person's praises and then he delivered this, which is just this just like incredible performance. It's just so realized to me and I yeah, I love him and it reminded me why. But it also was so new for me too, like to see this side of Bradley Cooper and to see him fully, you know, become 
this character and give him more than he had in the other versions of this film. So yeah, I think he absolutely deserved to win. It's more than just the Tom Ford bronzer and the spray tan. He (laughs) learned to sing. He is so, I just, I find the performance very moving and the emotional scenes and you believe him that he's falling in love with her. So yeah, I have to give him best actor. He deserved it. Mic drop. You've convinced me. <laughs> we had to end the episode that way with the the Oscar justification for yeah for Bradley Cooper. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. Oh my well, god! Fun. Thank you guys so much for coming on. This has been this such a fun discussion, and thank you for spending so much time with us talking about these four movies today. I couldn't think of a better way to spend my night. To be honest with you, I. I'm continuously impressed by the two of you and your podcast and the way that it just continues to, I mean, I think I said this before. I don't know if I've said it on the record, but anytime you two post anything and then tag us, we get so many followers. It's crazy. Y'all have a mass loyal following and, and respect in the community. So congrats to you both. We're honored that you include us in these types of things. 100 percent. everything dylan said i had the best time i apologize for being a looney tune for this entire recording but it was so fun and this was we've been talking about this all year haven't we so yeah um, we really have it was a dream come true i loved it the funny thing is i think we could record this again and have a different three-hour cut than what we talked about today Mm -hmm. totally 100 (laughs) percent wild but yeah thank you guys so much for coming this is great and i can't wait to have more musical discussions in the future and tell everyone i know that our listeners have heard you before but just in case we have some new ones tell everyone about drama with connor and dylan mcdowell i think connor always does a good job of of capturing our our essence Thank you. Yeah. So Drama with Connor and Dylan McDowell airs every single Wednesday where we have long form interview style conversations with the Broadway stars you know and love and the ones you haven't met yet. And we talk about theater, pop culture, love lives. It's a really fun, free flowing conversation that I feel like you can't get anywhere else in the theater community. So you can find us at the Drama Podcast on Twitter, Instagram and TikTok. And you can download us on Apple, Spotify, iHeart, you know where to find podcasts. So all of those places. And um, yeah, it's Dylan and I. So and Nick and Sophia came and did an amazing episode with us earlier this year. And um, hopefully they'll come back and join us again sometime. Anytime. We would love to be back. So would we. We'd love it. Well, this is a highlight for us every single year. I feel like we always also have it come out around the holidays, which feels Mm -hmm. so fun. Yeah. Um, Cozy. A perfect yes, listen totally. on a trip home or mm-hmm. wherever you're traveling for the holidays. I guess happy Thanksgiving since yeah. this oh, will be out then. Yeah. yeah, happy happy holidays. Oh, yeah. Oh. I'm thankful for y'all and our <laughs> daily conversations. Dylan, I knew you were going to say that the second Nick said Thanksgiving. <laughs> I am. Well, our group text, the Tarmy, as we're called, it was originally called Greta Gerwig's what was the Greta Gerwig's Little Women? That was the first iteration of. Or was it Little Women or was but... it Lady Bird? Was it the Lady Bird? I think one? it was Greta Gerwig's Little Women. Like we were the Little Women. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Is it going to be the Little Jackson Mains? What's our What's yeah, our Yeah. What do we want to change it to now? Hair body oh face. The Blodgetts. <laughs> It'll have to be something from this this uh, film season, I think. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. Oh, love to think of something good. <laughs> 
anyways yes thank you thankful for you all yeah thank you guys for joining thank you all for listening to this very long podcast you can find us at twitter instagram and tiktok at oscar wild pod and bonus content at patreon.com slash oscar wild thanks everyone we'll see you next time Bye.